This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. Athletic Greens has become one of my favorite parts of my morning routine. I wake up, throw on a podcast, add a scoop of Athletic Greens to about 8 to 12 ounces of cold water. I shake that up and sip on that while I'm making my first cup of coffee and my breakfast. It's super refreshing. It tastes really good. There are some fruit extracts and a little stevia in there to make it tasty. And I look forward to it every morning, almost as much as my first cup of coffee, which is really saying something. Why do I take it? Well, like I said, it tastes good. It's really refreshing. But also, one scoop of Athletic Greens has 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. I think of it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. I like to eat whole foods. When it comes to nutrition, I try to get as much as I can from my normal food, but it can be really hard to get everything that you need every day in all your meals, especially when you live on the road like I do, or if you're traveling to climb. I love that if I take Athletic Greens in the morning, I know I'm covered. If you want to check it out yourself, Athletic Greens is going to give you guys, my dear listeners, a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash nugget. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash nugget to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. This episode is also brought to you by Grasshopper Climbing. These guys make the best adjustable climbing wall you can imagine that you can put right in your home or garage. I've tried a lot of different training approaches over the years and building a climbing wall in my garage was to this day, one of the best things I've ever done to improve at climbing. I was more focused when I climbed on my home wall than I was at the gym. My training was more specific to what I wanted to get better at. And it was super easy to be consistent with my training because all I had to do was step out into the garage and turn on some hip hop and I was ready to climb. It was awesome. But First, I had to build the wall, which was a pain in the ass and took weeks to finish. I had to get hundreds of dollars of holds and decide what I wanted and where to get them, and I had to do all of the setting. If I wanted to warm up, I had to set easy problems. If I wanted to do volume, I had to set a bunch of moderate problems. And if I wanted to try projects, I had to set them too. It took a ton of work. So when I buy a house and build my next climbing wall, I am getting a grasshopper board because these guys nailed it. They made the perfect board that does everything I want it to do. You can change the angle on the board. It's super easy to change the angle on all of their board systems, all the different size boards. So you can warm up and work on more technical problems at 20 degrees, and then you can kick it back to 40 or even 50 or 60 for a hard bouldering session. The LED lights are perfectly integrated with their app, so you can browse through countless boulder problems set by other people all around the world, and the lights will immediately light up which holds you can use. So you don't have to do any setting, but if you want to, you can also do your own setting and add that to the app too. And you can even share your favorite boulder problems with your friends. Finally, there's great variety, but you can really tell that every single hold on that board has a purpose and it was positioned exactly where it needs to be to make your climbing experience as interesting and valuable as possible. It's awesome. 
But don't take my word for it because the folks at Grasshopper just want you to try it out for yourself. If you want to learn more, head over to grasshopperclimbing.com or check them out on Instagram at grasshopperclimbing. Check out their boards and reach out to their sales team to see which board solution is right for you. And if you love it, be sure to tell them I sent you because the folks at Grasshopper are offering you guys, listeners to this podcast, $500 off when you order a fully kitted out 8x10 Grasshopper board. And you can save even more than that if you upgrade to one of their larger boards. Again, that's grasshopperclimbing.com to learn more and connect with their sales team. And be sure to tell them I sent you to save $500 or more on your very own Grasshopper. Finally, this episode is brought to you by Climbwell. Climbwell is having another retreat coming up in June. The dates are June 9th through the 12th. It'll be hosted in beautiful Rifle, Colorado, one of my favorite places to climb. And it's going to be awesome. The Rifle Retreat is going to be organized around workshops and clinics. So you'll be on the rock every day climbing and also covering topics like befriending fear, performance climbing, rock life balance, the art of attention, setting climbing goals, and so much more. Learn more about the retreat at www.climbwell.co. And if you want to sign up, be sure to use discount code NUGGET10 at checkout to save 10% off your ticket. Hello, my friends. Welcome to the Nugget Climbing Podcast. This is your host, Stephen Dimmitt. And my guest today is Ned Feely. Ned is a top-level boulderer from the UK, and he's also the co-founder of Beastmaker. If you have been in a modern climbing gym anytime in the last five or ten years, you've probably seen a Beastmaker hangboard hanging up somewhere in the gym. Beastmaker is one of the leading brands of hangboards and wooden climbing holds. Ned co-founded the company with his buddy Dan Varian back in college, and now Ned is the author of a new training book that just came out recently titled Beastmaking, A Finger's First Approach to Becoming a Better Climber. So unsurprisingly, we talked a lot about the book during this conversation. We talked a lot about finger training and how to become a beast and how to build your finger training over the long term. As you guys know, I've had a lot of conversations about hangboarding and finger training on this podcast. We didn't go into detail into seconds on, seconds off, protocols, how many reps to do and things like that in this conversation. We really went deep into principles. What are the things that many of us are missing when it comes to our finger training that keep us from getting the results that we want? That's the stuff I was really interested in approaching with Ned. And I took a ton away from this conversation. I've already been implementing some of Ned's advice in my own training. And I think no matter where you're at on your own finger training journey or climbing journey, I think you'll likely find this conversation very valuable. And without further ado, I hope you guys enjoy the conversation and take a lot away from it. Please enjoy this wide ranging conversation with Ned Feely. So you're you're in a Jeep right now, is that what you said? In a sheet. We're in um in Fontainebleau at the moment. Oh, okay. Right on. Yeah. How's the so weather? We've been here for oh it's absolutely amazing. Nice. Yeah, we've been here for 
three weeks and i think we've had three days of rain which for fun is just crazy oh that's that's brilliant that's excellent yeah yeah <laughs> totally not what you expect when you book a trip here when you know you're normally expecting five days of rain and a good day <laughs> nice but, yeah it's that's, great yeah it's good to hear how are you in waco i'm in waco tanks right now yeah in my little living in my van and i'm in my little campsite here five minutes from the park right now and it's a beautiful day today it's it's blue and sunny and and windy i'm curious wow. if people will be able to hear the wind out there but yeah it's been fun i can't, I can't. <laughs> great that's good <laughs> can you pronounce your last name for me before we jump into this i want to make sure i have that right yeah we say fairly feely Really, but oh, I mean, easy, whatever. Easy but, enough. There's okay. too many letters, aren't there? <laughs> there's some extra vowels in there that, yeah. I know, yeah, not necessary. It's very <laughs> Irish, that name. Got you. Yeah. Got you. <laughs> um, do you have any questions for me before we jump into this? No, I don't think so. No, no. Okay. Well, I've, I'm sitting Far here with, yeah. with about three pages of notes. It's probably way too much, and we'll just see what we can get to. <laughs> but uh, Ned, welcome to the show. It's really good to have you here. Really excited about this. Ah, thank you. Yeah, cheers. Good to see you in Waco. Well, we're in fun. Two major destinations tipped up there. <laughs> yeah, they are. <laughs> they are. I love that. I always I always find it so fun when... Um, yeah, when when this lines up like this and two people are on trips and we're both just, you know, I'm talking from my van and um, making it work. Yeah. yeah. Imagine trying to do this 20, 20 years ago. Wouldn't have worked with it. <laughs> right. Um, well, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to talk to you. And I already knew a little bit about you and your climbing before getting ready for this conversation. And I've been reading your book. So one thing that we're going to be talking about a lot is your recent book, Beast Making. And for people that haven't made the connection, you're one of the founders of Beast Maker, which is, you know, that's become one of the most popular hangboard and climbing hold companies out there. That Beast Maker center edge has become so iconic. It's probably the most hung on hold in climbing. (laughs) Um, But I wanted to learn a little bit more about you and see what other interviews you've done, see what other videos you've done. So I Googled you the other day you know, just typed in Ned Feely into Google. And the first thing that popped up, Google said, who is Ned Feely? And it just said, Shauna Coxie's husband. So, <laughs> Great. I know my place. <laughs> <laughs> I got a real kick out of that because you're such a badass. You've done so, you've done so much good cli- hard climbing and uh, you've started a, you know, a really successful business and you've written a book and <laughs> Shauna Coxie's husband was the top thing on the list. So congratulations well, for yeah. that. You know, that, I, yeah, oh, thank you. I thought yeah, that was pretty thanks. funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, that suits me, to be honest. I'm happy to be sat down there, demoted to husband. That's fine with me. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. That's great. Um, So I wanted to read a post that you had shared on your Instagram about the book because it's such a perfect lead-in. I just stumbled into this the other day as well. Uh, You wrote, I wrote this book with the goal to fill it full of useful and interesting nuggets of information for everybody. Whether you're just starting out or you're already an expert climber, there are are also loads of lovely photographs to look at, or you can just stuff it inside a knee bar pad. Uh, whichever way you look at it, it's a bargain for 20 pounds. So I love that you wrote this book to try to fill it full of nuggets. This is the Nugget Climbing Podcast. I feel like this is just meant to be, and, and we're in the right spot here. So <laughs> we're going to get hopefully get a lot of useful information for people. Yeah, hopefully. Hopefully, yeah, people can... <laughs> 
pick up something that's useful. <clears throat> but I want I want to start by bragging about you a little bit because I didn't know much about your specific accomplishments. I knew you had climbed hard. I think I had seen footage of you doing some pretty gnarly highballs. You know, I think um, was it Blockheads? Were you in the film Blockheads by chance? I did. I did a couple of bits in that. But what you might been watching them was life on hold film okay yeah a british film from about uh, 10 years ago probably okay which is a lot about highball bouldering and kind of yeah kind of high scary bouldering yeah yeah you seem to not be a specialist because you do it all but you seem to be very good at that and i'll just brag about you for a second so i was reading up on your accomplishments (laughs) and you know some of the big names that stuck out you did a repeat of the ACE, you know, a V13 8B that Jerry Moffat put up. You did that years ago. And that was really fun to read about because I just interviewed Jerry and we talked about that one a bit. And then Voyager Sit, oh, great. same, you know, I talked about that one with Ben Moon. Uh, the Big Island, you've climbed V15 with that one. And you've flashed up to V14 in Rocklands, which that's just amazing. Like that level of... Uh, of competence and flashing and doing something first try relative to your max abilities, really impressive. So one thing I'd love to talk about later is tactics or your approach to flashing a boulder, if you have any strategy for that. Um, but then, yeah, you've yeah. done a bunch of V11 high balls too, and and um, some scary, really slopey font style, insecure top outs, really <laughs> high off the deck and things. And you've got a successful competition climbing background too. So you're a very accomplished climber. And you were before getting into this training side of things. And I'd just love to hear a little bit more about you, like how you started in climbing and and what your climbing was looking like early on as a kid. I know you started pretty young. And what led to starting Beastmaker? Because I think that's where your journey took a a big turn and led us to where we are today. But um, yeah, just give us a little bit of that background. I started originally... I started climbing when I was probably nine or so. So quite, I think by the standards then, that was quite young. That was maybe about 1997 or so. Um, most of the people I climbed with at the time were like, you know, middle-aged blokes, really. There wasn't really that many kids climbing. Um, but now that's totally changed now, hasn't it? Like all the, all the better climbers now are really young, it seems. So kind of nice that more youngsters are finding it, I think. But when I began, I felt like I was kind of one of the few young people at my local gym, mm. which was a bit weird, to be honest, because you're a nine-year-old kid having to hang out with adults all the time. It's kind of strange. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it, it can be good as well. It makes you kind of, makes you grow up and appreciate things differently, maybe. Um, so I started there climbing indoors mainly because I'd, we didn't have local rock really where I grew up, right in the middle of the UK. Um there was rock about an hour and a half away, but as a kid, I, I didn't really have the opportunity to go. So climbed indoors loads. And that's kind of how I got a bit of an interest in comps because it was something you could kind of train for and not worry about being able to drive to the crag or whatever. Mm. Um, and that all kind of ticked over. And then I, the next big step for me really was moving away to university. So when I was 18, I just decided I'd better go to Sheffield if I want to go climbing a lot because that's the kind of the centre of it in the UK. So I decided I was going to go to Sheffield and then try to get in on a course that I could hopefully manage to get to to the end of. (laughs) What did you choose? I did a biology degree in the end. Okay. Um, 
which was it was fun i mean I, I was into it but i never really felt like kind of going down that route and getting a career at the end of it was something i was going to end up doing but it just felt like it's such a good opportunity to move somewhere and be somewhere different and kind of be in a really good climbing scene so university seemed like a really obvious choice at the time i mean these days it costs a lot more to do that so it's a lot lot bigger commitment mm. Whereas back then it was subsidised really heavily by the government, so you could get your tuition fees were so cheap it was kind of worth doing, really. Yeah, gotcha. Maybe changed a little bit now, um, but then that that meant I got to Sheffield and kind of got my independence, and I was in a thriving climbing scene with loads of really good people. So that was absolutely amazing for my climbing, meeting people that I still know and climb with now, getting to see all these hard rock climbs out and about basically local to where I was living. Um, and then that's when we were at university, that's when Dan and I started Beastmaker as well. Mm. So that was a kind of another turning point was we were climbing and training a lot, but didn't feel like we had quite the products that we wanted. Um, we, we really liked climbing and training on wooden things, hanging on wooden fingerboards. So we were making them for ourselves and it just sort of became apparent that training on wood was really beneficial and we were getting on really well with it and mates of ours were really interested so we just made a fingerboard and started producing them so Beastmaker just kind of came out of all that and snowballed to the point where we kind of got to the end of university and didn't need to get a real job which was brilliant <laughs> yeah. it's the best outcome really <laughs> that's perfect <laughs> yeah it's been it has been amazing I'm kind of thinking back and wondering what I was going to do with myself as a kid and then finding myself doing pretty much whatever I want all the time. It's just amazing. It's great. <laughs> mm. um, what was the training paradigm at the time that led you or, or that gave you that need? Was it just all old resin hangboards? Were, were there hangboards or was it just plastic holds on the wall? What did you guys have access to at the time? Yeah, I mean, there were there were hangboards around, but it felt like certainly in our in our scene and in our kind of peer group in Sheffield, no one was really interested in hangboarding. People were climbing indoors or going outside and the, the actual kind of training scene didn't feel that well developed. Um, whereas now there's, it's very different. Now people go to the gym to train, whereas it felt like back then perhaps people went to the gym because it was raining and they couldn't go outside. Mm. And I, I think training's become a lot more of a kind of accepted norm for the people. I remember almost getting laughed at for taking a stopwatch to the gym and kind of training with a stopwatch. And people were just like, what are you doing? <laughs> You're a lunatic. <laughs> so I think, I think you know, campus boards were around and people did train, but it wasn't, wasn't a kind of regular or normal thing that people did, I don't think. But nowadays it's, it's become way more normal. Mm. Having a training plan is pretty regular, isn't it, now? Whereas, you know, the thought of having a training plan and sticking to it in the early 2000s was just crazy. Wow, yeah. So it, it felt like for us, we, we managed to make a product that was kind of, people realized it was useful. But also we tried to present it as being something that was actually kind of cool and fun and not tedious to train on. Mm. So we just tried to kind of make it appealing and make it look like it was something worth doing. Well, you, I think. You... Go ahead. Sorry. I think maybe the interest in yeah. Uh, sorry, uh, I think then maybe the interest in kind of hangboarding and the, the benefits 
first is how little you actually have to do and it became apparent to people mm. they started fitting it in it just became more normalized and hangboards started going up in all the gyms and just became way more normal mm. i think we were lucky that when we started beastmaker it was right at the beginning of that transition i think and we we did time it very fortunately yeah, you did. And you, I was going to say this, you picked a very good name as far as making it seem cool. <laughs> Beastmaker is just yeah. so good. It's like, oh, I want that. I want to become a beast. I'm going to buy yeah. that thing. <laughs> it is funny because at the time we thought, oh, that, it's quite ridiculous. It's almost cartoony, isn't it? But, <laughs> but at the same time, we thought, oh, let's go for it. Whatever. People aren't going to forget that. Like, so <laughs> we just went for it. And luckily it's kind of, it's stuck and it's, I think it, in retrospect, it, it, it was a good choice. We could have gone for something a lot more boring and it would, you know, now it would be a bit dull. So mm. <laughs> I'm, glad, I'm glad we did choose it, but at the time it, it did seem a bit daft. But I guess we were young and kind of, whatever, we didn't care at the time. <laughs> we didn't really think about it. We were just making them. <laughs> That's great. Oh, I love it. I love it. I wanted to ask you, what influenced you? I mean, wh- where were you getting these ideas to show up at the gym with a stopwatch? Is it, just... Was this just stuff you were making up on your own or were you looking at other climbers that were influencing you or drawing ideas from other sports? Like what was it that set you down your own training path? Yeah, I think for me, I'd always been, I'd always been kind of fascinated in the training side of it, but there was very little information out there. There was maybe the odd magazine article written, but I'd looked up to people like Ben and Jerry and Malcolm Smith, Mm. people like that. And they were, they were kind of known for training at the time. And I went up to people like that and thought, well, if it's helped them, then you know it's got to be a good thing to do. But also my approach to climbing has always been that I'm really happy to put effort in if it helps me to improve because I love the feeling of getting better. So I was always just looking at what I could do to kind of get an advantage here or there. And it just seemed quite natural to me to do all the kind of boring training stuff that a lot of people weren't interested in. Mm. I'd happily spend an hour stretching when most people would head off to the pub or whatever. Um, I think it's just my mindset is quite kind of, I just like the progress and I've always been really interested in fiddling around with ideas to try and help me improve, I think. Which, I mean, some people could perceive as being a bit boring, but you know, I like it too. Me too. <laughs> me. Yeah, I mean, I built a whole podcast around that, so. <laughs> well, it, Exactly. And I think more and more climbing attracts people like that, doesn't it? Mm. Because there is a, a really obvious way of training for it and you can really easily see progress if you put the effort in. So I think it does attract people that have that mindset, I think, and that are quite driven. Mm. Well, you touched on a couple things there that are a perfect transition here because, you know, knowing that you founded Beastmaker, um, you are a beast yourself, but you just talked about spending an hour stretching. Like you're also known for your very incredible flexibility, especially for your body type, like for a muscular guy. Um, I think you can do the splits on a good day. I've seen you do that. And um, you're also an incredibly good technical climber. Um, You're a total heel hook wizard and you do a lot of really tricky grit stone bouldering and and things like that. It's not just this guy got really strong fingers and climbs hard. It's, you know, you, you have a much more holistic approach to that. So I'd wanted to ask you, I mean, the name of your book is Beast Making, A Fingers First Approach 
to becoming a better climber. And I read that and was like, oh, sweet, this is going to be an entire book about fingerboarding. But it, and it is, but it's, it's <laughs> much more holistic than that. It's actually a really, I love how you organized it. It's really well laid out and it's a much more holistic introduction to how to become a better climber across the board, you know, and, and it touches on way more things than just training on a, a hangboard and getting your fingers strong. So I'd wanted to ask you, just tell me a little bit about your broader philosophy when it comes to improving at climbing and how finger training and this finger first approach fits into that. Because it seems like you do everything to try to improve as a climber. I'm just curious how you think about that. Yeah, thanks. Well, I mean, I'm really glad that that's the kind of um, the vibe that you got from reading the book, because that's, yeah, that, as you say, that's always been my approach to climbing is that uh, there's there's such a huge amount of things you can improve on. Climbing's so complicated, isn't it? It's not just about hanging on an edge and pulling on it. There's so many things to improve. And for me, uh, the, the kind of limiting factor is always finger strength because I'm quite a heavy person. So that's always the focus of my training because I think if you can hold on harder, you're always in a better position. But below that, you've got everything else that you need to work on. And to neglect one of those things just seems completely daft to me you'll end up with a big hole in your climbing. But I think also a lot of that approach for me comes from the fact that I, when I was younger, I had quite an interest in comps and just generally trying to be a very well-rounded climber. I didn't really want any holes in my climbing, whereas I know people that are quite happy to be a crimp specialist or a slope specialist. Whereas for me, I've always wanted to be able to try my best to be able to do everything and be good at every style as far as possible which partly stems from comp climbing and partly stems from wanting to go outside. And if I see something I want to do, I want to have a good chance of doing it. I don't want to have to walk away because I'm terrible at slopers or crimps or something. Mm. So it's a whole kind of everything I want to improve on in climbing is to, to work towards being well-rounded and good at everything rather than specializing. Um, and I think also a lot of that comes these days from the fact that a lot of the climbing I do now is on new problems that I'm trying to find locally. So I'll just wander around trying to find stuff and who knows what you're going to find. It could be anything. So you, you need, maybe it's a dino, you know, you've got to be able to do everything. Um, and you, you can't just go out and find crimp problem after crimp problem after crimp problem. <laughs> Certainly not where I'm from. Maybe you can in some places, but yeah, it's just always the idea of becoming well-rounded has always been at the heart of, um, everything I've done in training, really. Mm. And I, I think possibly a result of that is that I've never been that good at kind of projecting one thing and specializing. Mm. So I've never really kind of gone down that route very far, whereas I, I tend to just focus on doing things as quickly as I can and then moving on, which these days seems like maybe a bit of an old school approach. I think a lot of people now tend to project more and put more time into things, but think maybe fundamentally I'm a bit lazy and don't want to do that. So <laughs> I just I just call myself well rounded. <laughs> well it's it's certainly not for everyone. I mean that's what's so great about climbing is you can find what resonates with you and just double and triple down on that. Yeah. You know, I just actually I had exactly, a yeah. I had a conversation with Martin Keller recently, uh, you know, Swissy okay. Bouldering and he has put hundreds of days into some of his projects. And I yeah. like projecting, but to me I'm like I would go insane. I think there's so, I would feel like I was missing yeah. out on so many other experiences <laughs> yeah. in climbing, 
but he loves it and and yeah. he uh, he doesn't seem to think back on any of those projects with any sort of regret anything like that he yeah. just loves being out there under the best boulder problem he can possibly find and and try so yeah 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 and i mean ultimately it is all kind of pointless so as long as you're enjoying <laughs> what you're doing yeah. <laughs> you know if you're on a project do it you know you'll have more fun than the person that doesn't enjoy projecting too. <laughs> you know it's that's the whole point of it is to go out and have fun isn't it so mm. you just have to find your way of doing that and it might not be the same as someone else's but it doesn't mean it's not the right way yeah yeah i love that um you'd mentioned your weight you said you're a heavier climber i'd love to if you're open to it i'd love to have you share your height and weight just for context for people yeah and so i'll try in, to convert it to inches and in, in feet and things for okay yeah in, in metric <laughs> And one seven eight centimeters, so probably just under five foot ten, I think. Okay. And then my arm span is probably six foot four, so I've got quite long arms. And then I weigh eighty seven kilos. No, seventy seven kilos, seventy eight kilos ish. Okay. Which would so, be that's about one hundred and seventy pounds. Yeah, that makes sense. Wow, you and I are almost exactly the same dimensions. Almost exactly. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, cool. That's awesome. That's really <laughs> inspiring because you climb way harder than I do. And I'm like, I always struggle with, <laughs> with finger strength as well. So, um, yeah. as always, I'll be asking a lot of self-serving questions in this conversation. Of course. Yeah, <laughs> you try to it. catch That's up with Ned. That's interesting because it, it, it does get rarer and rarer to find people that are not really skinny. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so many people just thin, aren't they? Which you know, if that's how you're built, then so be it. But <laughs> yeah, if that's that's the key. If that's how you're built, then so be it. But um, a mistake I've made, I've talked about this on the show, is trying to force myself to look like that when I wasn't naturally built that way. Yeah. Did you ever get pulled in that direction at all? Did you ever wrestle with, um, I don't know, with with restricting what you're eating or trying to control your weight, anything like that? Or have you always been able to just embrace the body that you have? Yeah, I mean, I I do occasionally lose weight if I want to do something specific, but it'll only be for one particular thing. So over the course of a couple of weeks, and after that, I just go back to normal. It's mm. just not worth it for me. It's not life becomes less fun. Yeah, um, if I can't eat what I want, basically. Yeah, and it, I I don't feel like I'm carrying excess fat around. I'm just maybe a bit more of a kind of muscly build than totally people. You know, if I. If I ever, well, when I eventually develop my dad bod, um, <laughs> you know, if I get a bit flabby, then then I'll do something about it. But, but I, you know, I don't I don't feel like I'm kind of artificially heavier than I should be. I just feel like this is my weight and that's it, you know. Yeah, totally. No, that's what it looks like watching you climb. I mean, you look, you look perfectly, your body composition looks great. You look like you're perfectly lean for your musculature and you just look like a, a stronger, more muscular climber than then at least the older paradigm i think it's you know becoming more normal um to see more muscle yeah. in people yeah i think it is yeah i think there's certain certain climbs where weighing less is just always going to be beneficial but whatever there's certain climbs where it doesn't make a difference so mm. just have to not get annoyed if some really thin person's better at a crimping <laughs> menu which is inevitable <laughs> you know <laughs> I'm going to write but that down and put that on my more. blackboard. I need to, I need to just read that every day. Don't get annoyed. But I think I think carrying a bit more muscle has its advantages as well. I think I've always felt quite robust and quite kind of injury proof in a way. 
Um, and I feel like I don't get that beaten up by, by stuff. Or like, you know, I can carry heavy stuff around and still climb. I don't know. I, I feel like in some ways it does serve me quite well. Um, but yeah, ultimately I, I can't really change it. So yeah, yeah. I'll just get on with it. <laughs> but it's never bothered me. And I, I really enjoy eating. So you know, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not in a rush to give that up. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds very healthy. Um, well, tell me a little bit about where your climbing was at, I guess, before you went down this path of Beastmaker and training on a wooden hangboard more regularly or training on boards with wooden holds, you know, um, climbing boards and how that progression, what that progression has looked like since then. I'm, I'm always curious, you know, like w- how high did you get, I guess, as far as grades go and accomplishments before bringing that in? And what kind of change has that made for you in your climbing to do more of the hangboarding and things like that? Yeah, so I think I think there's kind of two stages to that. So when I was at university, I, and when we started Beastmaker and we went through all that, I got really into handboarding and dead hangs and stuff. And then at the time, I noticed quite a big improvement quite quickly. So I went from maybe maybe climbing like. I've done maybe a couple of 8A boulder problems. And then by the end of university, I climbed 8B. Oh, wow. Over the course of three years of of doing loads of hanging and then a bit of indoor climbing, but not not really much else. Loads of outdoor climbing, loads of dead hangs, mm. a, bit, a bit of indoor training. So that was the first kind of little leap that I felt. And then after that, when I built my first board that was exactly what i wanted out of a board so built entirely for me and you're talking about like a like a cellar board right like a climbing wall yeah yeah, yeah. so yeah so in a, i think it was 2014 um when i bought my first house and i suddenly had a cellar and i could build my own board and do exactly what i wanted and after a couple of years of training on that board again i noticed quite a big jump in my not in my ability necessarily, but in my just my ability to grab on really hard. Mm. And so that was the second kind of little training jump that I got. But both of those, it took a few years for that to really come out. It wasn't, you know, I didn't just start hangboarding and the next week I'd, I'd improved three grades, yeah. you know. Yeah. It was over the course of three years. And then I built my board and climbed on it for a good few years before I really noticed I'd kind of stepped it up again. Um but also, I think it's worth bearing in mind at those points, certainly when I was a student, so I was kind of 18 to 21, I was still basically a skinny kid. And then over the next maybe five years, I felt like I kind of filled out into being sort of having an adult body and kind of reaching the end of puberty. Maybe I was a bit slow at developing. But I think that um, as much as training, just developing and growing up, and filling out into sort of man's body helped my strength as well. Mm. And I just feel like maybe that was, I just developed a little slower than the people that I knew. Yeah, cool. Yeah, they were the sort of jumps in my performance. And I, you know, I could put it down to training or I could put it down to my sort of personal growth and development. But I think it's sort of both things intertwined, really. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. That's great. I I um I want to dive headfirst into the 
<clears throat> the finger strength stuff, because I'm sure people listening to this, that's what many of them are, are hungry to hear about. And of course, those are the questions I'm always interested in asking too. But I, I rather than, you know, we talk a lot about finger strength. It's in the last 10 years, like things have evolved so much and now there's so much information out there. And I, I've realized doing this podcast, you know, and I've had conversations about protocols and wanting to know exactly what someone's doing and things like that. Um, but I've realized that for a long time, I was always asking the wrong questions. I was always trying to chase down, like, what's the best way? What's the best way to get my fingers stronger? And you have a little section in your book, and I, I love how you laid this out, but there's this question, like, what is the best way of hangboarding? And I'm going to read this little quote from your book. It's just a sentence long. You start off that paragraph by writing, anyone who tells you that their way is the best way to fingerboard is wrong. If there was a best way, then by now we would have figured it out and we'd all be doing it. And I love that. I think that's so true. And I think so often we miss the forest for the trees, you know, like we're really into the details. Um, there's a lot of programs out there, but to your earlier point, a lot of us think that we can find some six week protocol that's going to be awesome and it's going to completely change our finger strength and our climbing. And you have a much more, um, again, holistic and like, no, you have to make this a part of your life and stick with it over the long term to really see lasting gains. So I, I really want to focus on principles in this conversation with you and talk about the key things that a lot of us are missing in our finger training and um, what sorts of things that you put first and focus on in your own training and what you see working for other people. So I want to start with this question. Uh, what are some areas, what are some of the most common areas where you see people go wrong when it comes to finger training that keeps them from getting the kind of gains that they could be getting? Yeah, um, I'm really glad that you kind of picked up on that, um, that approach because that's, I mean, that's, totally what that's the way i feel about training for climbing definitely it's it's all kind of yeah as you say more holistic and less details driven really um, so i'm really glad that that's sort of what you read and that's what you got out of it um what do people miss most frequently i i think the the thing that people struggle with the most is consistency and just continuing keeping at something for a long enough time to make real gains from it as you say, everyone's looking for the six-week program that's going to completely change their climbing. And I think the issue with that is it's only six weeks long. I think people, if you want to be fingerboarding, I think you need to be doing it consistently for a very long time, six months to a year, really, doing it. Not all the time, but fairly consistently. Because your tendons and your connective tissue adapt very slowly and they need regular loading um, in order to adapt, in order to encourage them to get stronger. So... I think consistency and really sticking with something, even if it's just a few dead hands, really sticking with it and doing it regularly is the most important thing people can do, I think. And I think it amazes people how little can be beneficial. So if you warm up and do, say, three maximum hands, that's really beneficial. And if you do that a couple of times a week for six months, that's so beneficial to your climbing. Mm. And it's basically quite easy to do, isn't it? It doesn't really take that much time. Um, so I think consistency is the real key um, that people miss out on. Um, and I think a lot of that is because they're expecting or hoping for a kind of shortcut to to get them, 
you know, Daniel Wood's crimp strength in two weeks. <laughs> yeah. but, you know, it, yeah. and, and as I said, it, if that was possible, everyone would have Daniel Wood's crimp strength. So, you know, <laughs> it totally. doesn't work. <laughs> it doesn't, yeah, totally. I know. I know. I, I think it's, it's always interesting when, when someone's a good climber and they've been climbing for a long time and they don't train, there's, there's so often this attitude, like I'm going to start training and I'm going to do it for six weeks. I'm going to do this block and it's going to be miraculous, <laughs> yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it's a real letdown. Cause like, yeah, you might kind of top yourself up and get some performance gains for a couple of weeks, but it's, it's not making those lasting changes that you can build on season on season. Yeah. And that's a mistake yeah, I made true. for a long time. I was always like, you know, look, okay, I'm really into repeaters. I think those work really well. And, but I have to take like a whole month block of, of time away from climbing to really get the most out of them. And I don't really love that. Cause then I come back and my fingers are stronger, but I feel kind of clunky on the wall. Okay. So repeaters yeah. aren't for me. I'm going to switch to max hangs. Okay. I'm going to do max hangs and I'm all in on this protocol. I had a bunch of years where I would do these blocks of training and then go into like, you know, I'm using air quotes here, performance mode and kind of just put all yeah. the training off to the side in the name of getting the most out of my performance and being fresh for my routes I wanted to do and things like that. Yeah. And so I was just kind of riding this like teeter totter, just going up and down. Like I would bring my strength up a little bit. And then over the course of the season, it would kind of dip back down to where I started. And then I would just bring it up again and then drop back off. And there's this real magic to, it's like investing. It, there's like these compound gains that you get by just doing a little bit over the long term. And I still really struggle with this balance. And the question I want to ask you is, how do you combine these things? Like when you think about training over the course of a year to get your fingers stronger, if that's, if that's someone's priority, you know, if, if finger strength is their weakest link, but they also have access to outdoor climbing a lot of the year, or they also want to climb in the gym. Is it possible to combine these things? Do you, do you, um, do you always fingerboard, even if it means slightly reduced performance? How do you think about combining those things? And what would you recommend for people that want to, that are, that are willing to, okay, I'm going to start down this path and I want to stick with it over the long term. Yeah. Well, I, I think, I feel in a way like I can cheat that a little bit because in the UK, the weather's really not great. So we can't just go out climbing every day. <laughs> so for us, you, you train and then when it's good, you go out. Mm. Whereas I imagine if you're, for instance, if you're living in Waco, presumably you can more or less climb any day that you want, give or take a few. Right. So fixing training in around that, I appreciate is a lot more difficult. Whereas, you know, back home, it'll rain so I can train and <laughs> it's not really a problem. Um, I think one thing that you can do that is, I find really useful is if you're going climbing outside is to work out a really good handboard warm-up routine that you could do before climbing. And you can work into that a set of two or three ma maximum hangs before you climb, which is great because you know your fingers are warm and you can pull as hard as you want. And also, at the end of the day, you know you've done some maximum hangs on your fingers. So a lot of the time when you go bouldering or root climbing or whatever, you, you're never pulling 100% on your fingers because mm. there's so much going on. Right. So if you do that, you, you can get really warmed up, not too tired because it's only a few hangs. And at the end of the day, you know you've done your maximum strength training and you've climbed. I think that can be a really good way of doing it. But I appreciate people. They don't want to feel tired when they're climbing. But when you get used to it, three absolute maximum efforts on the fingerboard 
doesn't really tire you out for climbing for the rest of the day. Yeah, that that really is a nice sweet spot. Yeah, it, it seems like such a tiny amount of work, but the fact that it's maximal, it's going to stimulate your body to improve. Um, and you can very easily fit it in once you get a good routine. You can even do it hanging on the bolt at the crag, you know, on a, mm. on a portable fingerboard. You can. It's very, very easy to fit in. For me, I've just built it into my routine, so I won't pull on a boulder problem until I know that my fingers are really warm and I've done a few maximum hangs. Um, and that's, I mean, I'm in fun and the weather's been great, so I can climb more or less every day, but I'm still warming up on the fingerboard just because I like knowing I've done it. I like knowing my fingers are warm. gives you a bit of feedback on how you feel. Mm. So for me, it's, I mean, it might seem a bit tedious if you just want to get to the crag, but i think in the long run it is so so useful to do that yeah no i love that i that's something um that's a really attractive idea to me because it does solve some problems it gets your fingers really ready to fire without losing any skin along the way which is so helpful um but as you said like if you find that sweet spot you can you can kind of zoom out and really easily see like for me it's interesting. It, it is so much of a challenge, actually, to be to be working on my finger strength consistently now that I live on the road because I'm just spoiled. You know, I'm, I'm able to go rock climbing whenever I want. Yeah. And even though I, th- I like to think that my long-term progression is more important than this boulder that I want to do right now, I always get sucked into wanting to do the boulder. You know, uh, I'm yeah. like, Definitely, yeah. <laughs> I just want to send the <laughs> thing. But, but um, I've kind of been looking for that. Like, is there a way to put a little work in every day maybe it means i'm climbing it 95 percent instead of 100 percent. but you know if you make a little bit of finger strength gains over months then all of a sudden it doesn't matter anymore um yeah can, can we zoom into that a little bit and can you describe what that might look like I, I guess the first question is do you do a fingerboard warm-up and then do your hangs completely separately from your climbing session like do you do that first and then go, go do a climbing warm-up on the actual rock later I normally do them totally separately because if I'm at home, for instance, I have my training set up in the cellar. So I go downstairs, do that all there, and then I go out to the crag. Um, so usually, and it here in front, I've got a fingerboard up at the house, so I can do the same thing here. Um, but yeah, if, if I'm, for instance, when we're in Rocklands, I'd have a portable fingerboard and I'd just hang it off a boulder somewhere. Work up to my hands on that. Um, yeah, so I think, I think for me, I just I like knowing I've done it, and I fit it in however it's easiest to do it. So usually that'll be just doing it at home, or maybe you could do that in the van, mm. and then go out to the crag. Yeah. Um, but I understand a lot of people really don't like warming up on the fingerboard, and they they much prefer warming up climbing. But for me. Things I've done so much of it, I almost prefer one with the fingerboard mm. because I really have a, a good uh, feeling of how my body kind of ease after doing that. Because some days you, you can have terrible days sometimes where you warm up and you just feel awful, can't you? And I know instantly and then often I just won't bother going out climbing because mm. it doesn't feel worth it. Um, or you can, you can feel amazing when you warm up and then you think, right, I'm getting on something hard today. It's going to be a good day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I like to keep them, I like to do the warm-up very definitely first and then head out to the crag, but there's no reason why you can't do it, do your kind of pre-fingerboarding warm-up on the rocks. Um, but for me, like I say the skin issue is, is a big thing for me as well. So I want to do everything I can to preserve skin. 
so I don't tend to do loads of warming up on problems outdoors just because skin always limits me when mm. I'm flat. One of the really interesting sections of your book was about active versus versus passive finger training, which is something I'm familiar with. I just hadn't heard it really described the way you described it. I really like how you broke that down in the book. Can you just describe the differences there and why that's important to think about? And I'd love to hear which one you use in this Max Hang approach that you're describing. Do you do you have like a certain you know standard grip type that you would go to in this instance to warm up for your session or is there variety there with your grips? But yeah, let's start with the active versus passive finger strength. Yeah, so it's it's always seemed to me like when you're climbing you can you have kind of two modes of hanging on. You have a really relaxed almost kind of drape your hand holds very open handed feel. Or you can have a a more active style, which is where you're really grabbing on hard, full crimps, inches, and your hands really working. And I think they're really, they're very distinctly different. And I think they need to be trained very differently as well, or or separately, because they're not the same grip type. You know, hanging open-handed on a two-finger pocket is totally different to really squeezing a thin pinch. Because mm. all the structures in your hand are doing completely different things. So I, I've always thought that was quite an important distinction because a lot of people they have their default and they'll just tend to exist within their kind of default area so a lot of people are just more open-handed climbers and they'll grab everything open-handed as far as possible and then when it comes to a really small crimp or a pinch they might struggle but then the other way around you get people that crimp everything when it comes to a pocket they, they just can't open hand so i think you you need to be aware of what you default towards and then think about training the other area to sort of keep on top of it. So for me, I'm, I'm a way more passive climber. I, I kind of rely on friction a lot more and squeezing things with my body and open-handed positions. I've always struggled more and really closed up grips and when my hands are really working to hold on. So that's why the majority of my training for the last five or six years has been really kind of active finger strength. Mm. I've noticed such a difference from that. Um, so then le leading on to what I do on the fingerboard as my regular sessions, I do all really active full crimp training because that's the, the finger strength style that I feel worst at when I'm climbing. So I'd basically gear most of my training towards it. Okay. Because I, I feel like if I'm just climbing in my normal state on a problem, I'll, I will be quite sort of passively hanging on. So I don't get that kind of active training out of a lot of my regular climbing. So when I'm really training for it, I concentrate on that active side that I tend not to sort of lean towards naturally when I climb. Got you. That makes sense. So as far as warming up for a session on the boulders, if you're going to go out and try a project, what might that look like? Are you just doing a like three, you know, warming up on the hangboard and kind of progressing and then doing three full crimp max hangs? Or do you like the half crimp? Or basically, do you have one thing that you like to do every time the same way? Or do you have variety? And I'd love to hear why, like how, how you think about that. Yeah, I'll, I'll have a few. I mean, if I'm, if I'm warming up for a project, then the hangs I'm doing will be tailored towards what I'm going to be climbing on. Okay. So if I'm going out to try a sort of slopey prow, then I'll do way more kind of open-handed warming up. 
because if I'm not going to engage a full crimp at all on the problem, then there's just no need. So if I'm warming up for something, I'll definitely gear it heavily towards that. But if it's just a more general warm-up or a more general training session, I'll always try to train the things I struggle with the most. So I'll always default towards active grip that I find a lot harder in my sort of general training. And that goes for fingerboarding and for climbing on the board as well. My sort of average session will be geared towards the thing I struggle on the most. Gotcha. Okay. That makes sense. So we've kind of covered how you might introduce or, or combine hangboarding with a regular outdoor climbing life. You know, someone who lives in an area where they can climb outdoors basically year round. Yeah. How, how might you structure a year of hangboarding? Do you have like kind of off seasons where you're putting even more work into finger training and that's the priority? And any recommendations there for someone who's like, okay, I, this is a huge priority for me. I have like the winter where I'm not going to be climbing outdoors as much. What might that look like in contrast to just doing some max hangs before going out for a session? Yeah, so for me, my kind of annual training sort of overview will always revolve around if I'm going away on a trip or if I have a project that I want to do. So for us, the the main gritstone climbing season is the dead of winter. If you need it as cold as possible. So often in the autumn, I'll kind of think about, sorry, in the fall, I'll think about the, the projects that I think I'll be climbing on in the winter. And I'll think, well, are these things I need to train specifically for? If so, what do I need to do for them? Is there, say, there might be a pocket on the problem. So then I think, well, maybe I need to put a few months of effort into pockets or is it just pure crimping? Do I just need to sack everything off and just get better at crimping for these projects? So I'll often, I'm generally around in the UK in winter. Work tends to be busiest around Christmas. So usually towards the end of the summer, it starts to cool down. I'll have a think about what I, I want to be climbing on. And I just think I'm going to gear my training towards these problems. Uh, a little bit, not not entirely, because with the weather and whatever, it's just unpredictable. So I, I always keep my training quite general, but I will narrow down the focus of it onto the, the few things that I have in mind for the winter. And then often if I get to go on another trip, for instance, I've got to come to fun in the spring. So before that, I knew that I needed to basically just not worry about training and climb a lot more because fun's so technical so much based around movement and feet and it's never really that powerful so i just focused on a lot more time on climbing and a lot a lot less time on hanging and sort of static stuff um so i i just kind of look at where i'm going to be and then give myself a few months to sort of not to train completely for that but to just focus my training slightly more on on the thing that i'll be doing because i i think i'm at the stage now where i've been training for 20 years so i'm not going to make huge leaps in in my progress but i can just slightly tweak things and adjust myself a little bit to make me fit what i'm doing slightly better yeah so that's just sort of i guess it's quite a lazy approach but no <laughs> i think really i could i think i could completely hammer training for one specific project and at this stage not really improve that much mm. whereas if i more generally gear my climbing towards something then there's, there's all the areas that you can improve. So if, 
for instance, before fun, I just went out on rock as much as I could, climbed as much as I could. And I felt when I got here, like I was moving a lot better than I had in the previous few months, just from doing a lot more actual climbing. Mm. Um, and then in the summer, we have a kind of average limestone season where we'll just do some sort of grotty limestone cave climbing. And for that, it's all about crimping really hard and power endurance. So when I get back, I'll probably focus a bit more on a bit of fitness and a bit of crimping and a bit less movement skill because you just got to hold on really hard. Yeah. So, yeah. For me, it's just very kind of, it is fluid all my training and it's just always loosely geared towards a goal, but never completely savagely to one thing. Got it. Got it. So yeah. I can't that, deal with that. That makes a lot of sense. And it, it makes sense given what you said, like you've been training for so long, you're not going to make these big leaps. Um, but I'm curious, going back to this book and this fingers first, uh, fingers first approach to getting better at climbing, how might you coach someone through getting the most out of their finger training if they've, you know, they've been climbing for a while, they're still going to continue to climb while they're finger training and working on these other skills. But someone, maybe this is you 10 or 20 years ago, like they still have a lot of progress to be made in this area. What are some of the like, I'm surprised there's a lot of variety in your book in grip types, in ways to hang and ways to load the fingers, um, rather than just like, okay, you're going to do max hangs and a half crimp on this 20 mil edge or the center rung on the beast maker and just do that until your fingers are strong. So I'd love to just kind of get a sense of your philosophy when it comes to, for someone who's really doubling down on finger strength and has a lot more gains to be made in that area, should they be doing a lot of variety and mixing it up throughout the year or just focusing most on the thing that they're worst at? How would you think about that and, and guide that person? Yeah, it's it's definitely worth having some variety, but I think the kind of classic view of, <clears throat> sorry, the classic view of doing a six or eight week block of something and then moving on, I think is flawed. I think you really need to do something to the point where improvement diminishes or slows right down. And only at that point is it worth moving on to something else. Mm. So for me, I'd, I'd do, I'd start on the grip type I'm weakest at. So say I train full crimps with a certain, say I do, I'm going to do max hangs on full crimps and I'm going to build up the weight as much as I can until I don't see any more progress. And at that point, I'll change it to something else. But if I'm still seeing progress, there's no point stopping after a predetermined time because you still, there's progress to be made. So I think you need to really listen to how your body's responding and then adjust stuff accordingly. And I mean, I, I think you can, you can train multiple grip types together throughout a, a training week or, you know, a couple of weeks. You, you, you don't have to specifically do one thing and then move on to another thing. You mm. can have an open-handed session, a crimp session. You can do a power endurance session. You can muddle them all around, really. I mean, it might not be completely optimal, but nothing is. No, no one, no one climbs completely optimally. There's always something. The weather's bad. You know, there's always something going on. So I don't think you need to worry about 100% optimizing everything you're doing. But I think you can always kind of, you can, if you can fit it in and you can do it and you're enjoying it, then I think you should get loads of variation into a training week and only really change what you're training when you feel like it's not it's not budging anymore mm. and you've sort of it's run its course then change that element to something else 
I like that. That yeah, that's that's really good. Um, you touched on a number of great things there. Would you separate it out like that? Like, would you have a active session and then a passive session, and then a more like repeaters power endurance session versus like one thing I've often done is train like four primary grip types. You know, like open four, half crimp, full crimp, and like three finger drag, and I'll just rotate through those in the same workout. Um, what are your thoughts on that versus separating them out and focusing all in on one grip type per session and having different sessions throughout like a week or, or things like that? Yeah, I think if, for me, if I can fit the sessions in, I like to just do them separately. So I'd rather have five really short sessions than say really long sessions. If I think if you can fit that in, I'm quite lucky that I can, kind of train at work at lunchtime or train before work at home so for me i'll happily do five days of training in a row and each session is just very different so they kind of don't really interfere much but i understand a lot of people don't have that luxury and they're they may be training around work or you know they've got a family life or something so at that point if your only option is to do two hours of training on a tuesday night then that's that's just what you need to do but I think if it's possible to divide that up, certainly with fingerboarding and hands, if you can divide it up into many short sessions, I think it's perhaps a little bit more useful. Mm. But ultimately, doing it at all is more useful than not doing it. So if, if you're constrained <laughs> and you only have a certain time to train, just do as much as you can <laughs> because you want to make the most of your time, don't you? Right. Um, and I know not everyone's in the position where they can just, you know, have a session before work, go to work, have a session at lunchtime. <laughs> you know, it's just a lot of us make our lives work around climbing, don't we? But for many people, it's just not possible. So in that case, it's just about figuring out what you really need to prioritize. And in your limited time, just absolutely came the things that you need to improve at without injuring yourself. Yeah, yeah, key key thing to highlight there. But I mean, it's interesting, like, I'm sure there are people out there that would have trouble training five days in a week, because of schedule conflicts and things. But the amazing thing about a hangboard is that you can put it in your kitchen doorway and, you know, fit in a max hang session while you're cooking dinner. It's it's so easy, you yeah. know, especially if you're using... Exactly, yeah. Yeah. You, if you like, have the motivation, then... Right. But I think um, this is something I want to ask you about. Uh, I'd love to get an example of what that might look like for you, like what that five-day rotation might look like for you because, and I want to get get a sense on like how structured you are with this stuff or how structured you think we should be with this stuff because I'm an engineer and for the longest time, the thing that attracted me most about hangboarding was how measurable it was. Like I wanted to see the numbers progress every session. I kept track of everything. I measured myself on a scale with the weight added to me, like to the pound, you know, um, every session yeah. would write those things down and write down the temperature and humidity in the garage and Great. whatever. But it, it. It, it didn't really work that well. Like it didn't, it didn't like give me miraculous gains. And I found that I was, I'm like hesitant to do too much climbing because I don't want to be tired and not hit like a new, PR on the hangboard, which is like, obviously becomes yeah. counterproductive at some point. And you seem to have a much more just kind of loose and go with the flow approach. So yeah, what might those five different sessions look like? Like, do you have any go-tos or do you just do what you feel like doing that day? And are you 
adding weight to yourself and measuring things or are you just is it just enough to do something that feels hard and you know that your fingers are going to get stronger because because it's interesting to me that like I, I recognize that there are climbers out there who have some of the strongest fingers in the world you know like daniel woods comes to mind and i'm sure he does some hangboarding but he's gotten that strong mostly from just climbing on really hard boulders all the time and there's so much variety there that obviously it works but i get kind of hung up on like i need to have a structured protocol that i'm going to follow every time um Anyway, I threw a lot at you, but I'd love to hear how you might go through those five days and some of the things that you would you would mix in there. Yeah, and let's come back to the five days in a sec. It's just I think it's interesting what to say about someone like Daniel. I think with a lot of these really strong folks that you see, especially with finger strength, I think there's such a massive genetic component to it mm. that I think for someone like him, he can almost do whatever climbing or training he wants and his fingers they're just at that amazing level kind of naturally i think mm. obviously he climbs a lot and, and tries really hard and it's he's done a lot to get them strong but i think the um the ceiling for his finger strength is probably just way higher than most people's so he's able to get them up to a much higher strength without putting loads of effort in <laughs> maybe and I, I think it seems like with a lot of the best climbers in the world, I think they just have this kind of genetic finger strength thing going on that unfortunately not everyone has, you know, and, mm. and whatever they do, if they just climb on rock or if they train a load, I think that the absolute peak of their finger strength is just that much higher than a sort of regular person's. Um, it just seems to be like that. Maybe it's, maybe it's not the case, but it seems like you can have loads of people doing absolutely loads of training and they'll never quite reach that next sort of step up of finger strength that these all the pro sort of strong people have it's something i've been thinking about loads recently i just find it quite fascinating that we all have that kind of genetic limits and the things that we're genetically quite good at and it, it's just a kind of climbing a way of sort of balancing all these things out making the most of what you've got almost um but yeah that's a bit of an aside anyway what are you saying what <laughs> the sort of five five day structure sort of thing um, yeah, and my my structure is pretty relaxed. I like to have a, a number of sessions that I'll fit into a week, but I don't really worry what order they're in, and I don't particularly worry if some of them don't go as well as I'd hope, um, because I think as long as on average you're seeing an improvement. So if you look back in six months' time, you'll see that you've improved at something, even if day-to-day -day your sessions are all over the place. I think you, you need to zoom out and look at the kind of macro scale of it rather than getting too hung up on each individual session because you can always have an amazing fingerboard session or just a terrible one completely out of the blue, can't you? And mm. You don't really know why, but these, they just happen. But the, the important thing is to really not worry about that. It's the fact that you've ticked off a session and you've done it and in six months' time, you probably will have improved when you look back at the results. So I, I tend to record every time I go up a weight or I make an improvement in an exercise, I'll record that. But aside from that, I don't write down every session that I do. I don't really worry too much. But then I do like looking back at when I've improved and how long the kind of steps of improvement are from one another. Um, but for me, recording everything is counterproductive because as you say i just kind of get bogged down in all the numbers and all the info and yeah 
kind of over, overthink it. And it, it's really that as long as you're doing it, then you will improve. And I think that's the really important thing to kind of uh, be considering while you do it. Even if it's a terrible session, just get to the end of it and just get it done. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, it, you know, don't don't get really stressed about the fact that you've got weaker because you haven't. You just had a bad session. Mm. And you'll always fluctuate. And I, I think the more you have going on in your life, the more you fluctuate. So, you know, if you have some work thing going on, that can just make you worse. Or, you know, any sort of stress or whatever, you've been a bit ill there's all these things it's all sort of coming at you all the time so you have to weather the storms and just sort of <laughs> look at the uh, the overall view mm. um so i just try and fit so for instance i'll always do an open-handed session i'll always do a full crimp session a half crimp session and then a couple of different climbing sessions on the boards as well which are aimed at, at different things um so we'll always do those in a within the seven day period but some of those would be really short so I, if i'm not feeling great i'll just do a few hands or if i'm feeling good i might do five hands on two different grip types for instance and then in my climbing sessions i might do i might just do 10 boulder problems on the board or if i'm feeling a bit better i might do 20 boulder problems on the board so i really like every session is really it does vary but as long as I feel like at the end of the week, I've kind of covered all the bases I want to cover mm. and tried really hard in a couple of sessions, then I'm pretty happy with that. That's that's great. Yeah, thanks for all that context. Um, and for your thoughts on that Daniel Woods thing. I think that's really valuable to think about. Yeah, that that's really interesting. Um, so that's great. I wanted to clarify. So when you say you kind of hit your fingers five times in a week, some of those might be hangboard sessions. Some of those might be on the climbing board. Um, yeah. Okay. Got it. And are you mixing in? Yeah. So it, go ahead. Um, yeah. So it, it does vary. Some Sometimes I'll just, I'll just be way more excited about climbing on the board. So I just do more of those sessions or sometimes I just, you know, maybe you've got a tweaky back or something and all you can really do is hand. So then I'll just hand. So I really, I, I do let it kind of come and go in my training. But it's, I find it's perhaps easy for me because I just love it. You know, I really enjoy it. So mm -hmm. I'm not, it's not hard work for me to go down and train. I just really enjoy doing it. Whatever it is, as long as I'm trying hard, I just really like it. So I kind of feel like I'm cheating in a way. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I just want to do it. Um, and it, even if it's an easy session, I just, I really enjoy it. <laughs> and in the book, you talked about max hangs and repeaters as kind of your two primary protocols. And then you share very specific details of how to do those workouts, which is awesome. The layout's really good. Um, but I thought that was interesting, like going back to this idea of having variety and just kind of going by feel. I've always, you know, going back to my engineering brain, I, I'm like, I'm going to focus on max hangs for this amount of time. I'm going to focus on repeaters for this amount of sessions with these grips, with this many sets, whatever. Um, any thoughts on focusing on one area for a given amount of time before switching, or are you mixing in repeaters and max hangs and different sorts of protocols within that five day cycle and, and just mixing them in all the time? Yeah. Well, I, I always mix everything in, in a week, but if I look in the long run, I'll, I'll tend to do at least 10 sessions of any one thing once a week for 10 weeks normally. 
So for instance, I'll be doing, I'll be doing math session and i'll make sure i do that for i'll do that 10 times and then i'll do a repeat session and it might not be running at the same time as that but i'll do 10 of those as well um so for me if i do something if i do 10 sessions of something and i'm still seeing slight improvements then i'll keep going mm. but if not then i've done these 10 sessions and then i'm just sort of nah maybe i'll move on to something else but i it, they kind of run simultaneously, but just on different days for me. Mm. And I just keep a, keep track of what sessions, sort of how many of that particular session I've done over the past few weeks and just see where we're at with it. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just sort of, I just think, well, I want to do 10 sessions of this and see how they go. Maybe that'll be enough. Maybe I can keep going. And then on another day, I'll be on session, say, seven out of 10 on another thing. Mm. That's really interesting. So if I'm if I'm getting this right, so you you might have I'm just going to make up an example. You might be working on like I'm going to do full crimp max hangs with weight added to my body two hands on one of the days. And I might be doing half crimp one arm assisted whatever max hangs on another day. I might be doing repre- repeaters on an open hand grip another day. I might be climbing on the board a fourth day and you're just going to do any of those sessions until you stop seeing progress with that very specific thing. And they're kind of like going on simultaneously and overlapping, you know, just kind of, am I getting that right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's that's really interesting. I've never, that's a really different approach actually than I've, than I've ever come across before, but it's, um, it sounds fun. (laughs) It kind of makes me curious. It's like, it's, yeah, it's kind of the least prescriptive way of doing it, but I think then at least, you know, you're, you are covering all the bases in a kind of training week or or whatever block you decide your block's going to be. For me, it's a week because it makes sense. <laughs> you know, it's easy, isn't it? Works around everything. Mm. But yeah, I just, um, I find that way. You're always doing different stuff, but also you always, you know that you're doing a good number of sessions of each thing that you're doing. You're not, it's not totally randomly jumping around between different things. You know, every day you're not pulling on differently on a different hold. Mm. Um so there, there is sort of structure to it, but day in, day out, it doesn't really feel like it because you can do any of them, you know, mm-hmm. whatever you feel like you can do. Some days you might have a split in the finger. So say like hanging on a certain pocket just isn't going to work because you have a split. So then you have to change what you're doing. So to have that flexibility is so useful, I think. Mm. Um, but then there also, there's sorts of hidden structure in the background, but session on session it's kind of a little bit more fun i think maybe Mm. but if your engineer's brain can can deal with it (laughs) (laughs) well no i I love that there's definitely a method there's a method to the madness and uh and it's just interesting like i think um you know we get hung up on trying to be over simplistic with some of this stuff sometimes and there's kind of a current trend to just go all in on like something very, very specific. Like I'm just going to do half crimp max hangs three days a week for the next six months, you know, um, which is, you can see if you zoom out and compare you, what you're doing to someone who's just doing that, like you're hitting on a lot more things. You're getting more variety. You're probably recovering more between sessions, you know, in the specific ways that you're working for, for that given session. Um, have you seen, do you benchmark your finger strength? Have you seen better results with that kind of method to the madness approach versus a more simple, 
you know, one grip approach. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, I think that I'm not trying to poo poo that, that more simple approach because I think for a lot of people that is amazing because it's, if it's just one thing to think about, one thing to concentrate on, it's, you know, it's so useful for a lot of people. That is the way to do it, isn't it? Because if the option is don't do any handboarding or just do this one particular half crimp hand session, then all of a sudden they can fit that into their life and it, it works and it they will improve. So I think I, I'm not trying to kind of say that's not a good way of training because I think for so many people doing that would be brilliant. Um, but for me, I I feel like it's just not, it isn't quite enough um, because I, for me, there's so much I feel like I need to be working on all the time. Maybe that's my weird kind of, rounded approach to climbing <laughs> i just feel like there's too much to be working on to concentrate solely on one thing um and now i've forgotten what your question was no i think you yeah i think you've answered it i'll just ask okay. another one <laughs> <laughs> i want to get a sense of what the ratio is with all these different ingredients so you have like max hangs and then repeaters and then the board climbing you have a really cool board i'd actually love for you to describe the board that you have in your house um, it, it looks like a symmetrically set kind of systems board or like a spray wall, but symmetrical with a load of yeah. like really cool wooden holds on it. Um, what, what's the ratio of all those things? What do you spend your time doing? Are you, are you also mixing in outdoor climbing with all those things? And, and how much of each of those might you, what, what's the balance, I guess, is what I'm getting at. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it really does change. If, if the weather is particularly good, and I can get out a bit more than I might get to climb outside, say three times a week, in which case, whatever day that is, I'll just go out and just forget about training for that day because that's always a priority for me is getting out on dry rock. And we don't get a lot of it in the UK over the winter. Would you still do your hangboard warm up for those days? Yeah, I normally will. I'll, I'll normally do a warm up and depending on what I'm trying outside. If I only climb outside for a bit on a project, then I might well come back and train because mm. I just feel like I've not done enough. Um, but often I might climb until the point where my skin's really thin and then I'll, I'll stop. Um, but yeah, I'll, I will always do a kind of a good handboard warm up with some, with some max hangs in normally before I go out. Um, so it, the ratios of what I do, it does change. If I can get outside a bit more, maybe three sessions a week, then I'll probably do one less climbing session on the board and maybe one less dead hanging session. But in a normal kind of a bog standard week, I might get out once at the weekend and then one afternoon in the week. So then I'd do, I'd do two board sessions and three fingerboard sessions as well. Um, are those all on different days do you ever combine the hangboarding with the board sessions yeah i do sometimes do a double day okay um, are they back to back or would you separate them out by like some hours in between oh yeah no it, it totally depends ideally i would i would have a uh, maybe ideally i'd have about five hours like a really good rest in the middle but it completely depends you know if i've got something i need to do that day that has to happen at a certain time, then I just fit training around it. Um, okay. Yeah. I, I kind of, 
I, I deal with the rest of life better if I know I've done some training and I've kind of ticked that box. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I feel like I feel like everything else is a little easier for me. You can so concentrate. It's really in important work for me meetings. To, yeah, to do the training. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, it's really important for me to do that, and I'm not too worried about optimizing it. I'd rather have done it than than not do it because it's not optimal, you know, for me. Um, so I'll yeah, I'll quite often do. Yeah, if there's no time, I'll quite often do a hangboard session, climb on the board immediately after for a bit bit less time and then be done, which could be three hours, but then I've got the rest of the day. So. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's I probably do quite a bit of training compared to a lot of people, but I think because I've been doing it for a while, I kind of, my body's fairly used to it and it doesn't doesn't really feel like it's that hard. Mm. Now, you know, it doesn't affect my outdoor climbing so much now. Just I feel like maybe I'm used to it or maybe I'm just used to being a bit tired or whatever. Um, can you yeah. can you describe your board that you built and why you set it up the way you, you that you did as far as like the principles of it? I'm I'm really curious how you think about wooden holds, why that's important or why that you feel like that's better. Um, and I'm also curious, do you spend any time in the commercial climbing gym on plastic doing, you know, quote, normal bolter problems that are set by root setters <laughs> and things like that? Um, yeah. 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 So, um, so we, we built a couple of boards at university, me and Dan, the guy that started Beastmaker with, we built a couple of boards in like, we built one in his bedroom and we built, we built a couple over the years. And we always just made our own wooden holds, partly because we were poor and we couldn't afford to buy holds. <laughs> and partly because we just really liked trading on wood. It just felt great. Um, and we could combine that really well with going out on gritstone, which is quite coarse. It really eats your skin. Mm. So it made sense for us to really preserve skin if we were training. Um, Do you think it's better for training? I mean, it, it probably goes back to that active versus passive grip thing. Do you think you get more out of climbing on wood as far as finger strength? I think because it's slick, you do have to hold on a bit harder. But I think the real benefit is just that you you won't be limited by your skin mm. in a session. You'll always be limited by how hard you can hold on or how tired you get. Whereas on a lot of resin boards, for me, I, I feel like I climb for about an hour on them and then it's just got quite painful and the skin becomes more of a limiting factor than strength. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, partly the holds themselves are a bit harder to hold because they're smooth. So you do have to really grab on. Um, but uh, I think a lot of it is just that you can train more on wood without skin being a limiting factor. Mm. Well, that's a perfect lead in. I wanted to, I got a bunch of listener questions for you and I wanted to ask this one from Finn. A couple of people upvoted this. They were like, yes, I, I had the same question. <laughs> so Finn, okay. Finn wrote, as a home wall owner without a lot of money for buying holds, making wooden holds is essential. In your opinion, what are the three best bang for your buck tools for hold making? Oh, I think you, you need a mitre saw so you can cut. You can cut lengths and mitre ends nicely because okay. you don't want to load a holes where you're putting your thumb on the end. You don't want a 90 degree edge on the end of a hole. Mm. If you cut them off at 30, 45 degrees, then there's less thumb option. So a mitre saw is really useful for cutting stuff up. A router is really good for profiling things, getting a nice rounded edge on something that's consistent. Um, 
and a good samba so you can finish stuff properly and not have sharp edges uh, because wood is a great material to train on but if you're training on sharp wooden holds you know there's no benefit there is there it's sharp <laughs> yeah <laughs> so, so it's great provided the holds are shaped nicely and and, uh, and work well as climbing holds uh, but just any old lump of wood isn't better than a resin hold right but a well-shaped lump of wood is better than a resin hold i think <laughs> What kind of a sander might you recommend for someone at home? Is this like a small belt sander or a handheld sander? What would, what would, what would that look like? Yeah, I, I'd say a, a small belt sander is really useful. Okay. You can get a load of material off really quickly. So you can, you can give things a lot of shape and curve and make things quite nice quite quickly on them because they remove a lot of material really quickly. Um, otherwise, you end up, if you kind of only do minimal sanding, you just end up with loads of sort of straight edges which, to be honest, are great for training on, but they're just maybe a bit boring. Mm. If you can start doing some curved stuff or some more interesting shapes, it's just a bit more fun to climb on, I think. Awesome. Thanks for that. And then I, I had cut us off. So I w we were talking about your board versus uh, commercial gyms. Do you spend any time on commercial gym boulders? And do you find that helpful at all? Yeah, I, I do. I mean, pre-COVID, pre I did a lot more climbing builds a lot more but since covid i've just really fallen out of the habit of it i think um but as, as i said before this fun trip i was trying to climb a lot more and just do more volume of climbing and i did loads of that at the gym um especially in in the gyms we have in sheffield they're quite technically set so you, you're often on a lot of kind of a reps or really footworky style problems it's not so much kind of leaping around on pinches like you get at some modern gyms um, so that style, that really sort of foot-on technical style was really handy actually for getting ready for well, all the fun is technical. <laughs> um, so I do, historically I've done a lot more standard indoor climbing and I do still like doing it, but um, I find training on the boards at home is so much more time efficient for me that it's what I default towards because I can fit it in a lot quicker because I don't have to go anywhere. Mm. I've got a good warm-up routine sorted. I think maybe if, if I had as much time as I had when I was a student, I think I'd do a lot more standard indoor climbing. Um, just because I, I really enjoy it. I absolutely love it. You just get to do so much moving in so many climbs in a really short space of time, which you just don't get to do outdoors. Mm -hmm. You've got to faff around and move around. So, you know, I do, yeah, I, I love doing loads of climbing and it's a great way to do it. So I, I should do more of it, but blame the fact that i don't have time <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you try to bring structure to your climbing sessions i mean you mentioned like on a tired day you might only do 10 boulders on the board on a good day you might do 20 do you have much more structure than that or is it just is it that simple yeah no i do i do structure it a bit more um there's a bit in the book about kind of the way i structure sessions and yeah i'll always do when I climb on the board, I'll always have a warm-up circuit that I do. So I'll always do a bit of volume at the start of the session. Um, and I'll vary the length of that or the difficulty of that, depending on how I feel. And then, yeah, I'll, I'll vary it. Sometimes I'll, I'll just stick some ankle weights on and just do a standard circuit of problems, but with added weight. So it's like a kind of don't think too much, but a really hard physical session. Or sometimes I'll just make up three or four projects and just work those for a couple of hours. It really depends. Um, 
my board sessions seem to fluctuate more than my fingerboarding sessions in how I feel. So I think there's a lot more going on in the board. So if one thing's tired, it can really kind of mess with your session. So I'm always ready to change my board sessions um, and just mix it up. But I've got a good kind of list of problems I can dip into and I can easily have a sort of volume session or I can easily have a really hard project session. And I, I've got so familiar with it now that I can kind of chop and change depending on how I feel. And I think, I think on, I mean, with all training, but I think on boards, it's so useful to be able to just draw a line under what you were planning to do and just completely change it for the purposes of having a good session rather than sort of persevering with what you were trying to do and not really getting anywhere. Mm, that's Better good. Off just, you, really, you just have to be aware of how you feel and not bang your head up the brick wall if you're feeling terrible. Um, and, and adjust it. But for me, I feel like any time spent climbing on a board is so beneficial because it's all, it's all fingers, it's all core, it's all pulling. So whatever you're doing is useful. It doesn't, the specifics are less important than actually being on the board climbing. Mm. Yeah, for people that haven't seen your videos, I'll share a video kind of introducing you and showing you climbing on your board. It's, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful, like, yeah, I don't know, thanks. 45 degree board with beautiful wooden holds. Yeah. It's all set symmetrically. Fi yeah. 55. It 55. Is. Okay. And, uh, and Ned but has I, this. I said I'd describe it, but sorry. Oh, that's a, no, that's okay. No, go on, go on. That's fine. This is all, this is all amazing. Uh, but yeah, Ned has this binder, like this beautiful binder with all these boulder problems yeah. in there. Um, kind of taking us back before LED lights and everything, but it just looks, you know, yeah, it just looks like it. an awesome <laughs> setup. <laughs> it looks great. Yeah. I, I love that. So, so that was the original board I built in the old house. And then we moved house a couple of years ago, just before COVID actually, we moved house. Um, and then we built a, another board next to it, which is kind of, tried to make the style totally different. So we've got, while they're essentially both steep boards, they climb completely differently. Uh, so it's, that's made it really fun because you can totally mix up your sessions by going on either board. Oh, you have two of them, same angle, different style. Yeah, yeah. So I just, I put one in at the same angle, but it's got completely different footholds. The handholds are way different. So just the moves you do on it are somehow completely different even though looking at it you know it's just a steep board but the way you climb and it's totally different just it's been really interesting actually to see how it you know how the, the differences between the two mm. even though when you look at them at a glance they're the same thing yeah no i think that is fascinating i actually a few years ago i had my own woody in my garage which had always been a dream of mine nice. And I, yeah. we didn't have a moon board at the gym at the time, I think. So I, I had never really climbed on one. And I just assumed that, you know, I was training on crimpy holds on this 40 degree board, same angle as the moon board. I thought it was going to translate and I made huge progress, you know, for a couple winters training on my own little board, but I set things in a very outdoor style, like lots of little in cuts, little biter feet, you know, lots of foot tension, lots of slow, yeah. hard foot moves, things like that. And then I went to the moon board and was like, Oh my God, this is at, like, it couldn't be more different, exact same angle. Yeah. And I couldn't do anything and it was totally yeah. different. So yeah, am amazing what a different hold set and different footholds can do. Yeah. We always say, I mean, the UK has got such a kind of board culture, especially around Sheffield. There's so many cellar boards. And we always say that every board's got its own character and you have to kind of get to know it before you can mm. climb well on it, which is, it's funny because ultimately it's just a really steep wall with 
wouldn't hold, isn't it? <laughs> they all feel <laughs> totally different. Yeah. Um, and you, yeah. you can be a master on one board, but be terrible on another, which I find really interesting. Mm. Is there any magic to 55 degrees or is that just what fit in your house? How did you decide on that angle? Yeah, that that just fit the best in our old cellar. So we, it was a really small cellar and I mean, it was only about just under eight foot tall. So we had to make it steep in order to get any sort of, like any length out of it. So it just ended up at 55 degrees. Okay. It might even be 56 or something. But <laughs> yeah, it was just basically, I just took some wood down and sort of shoved it in at about the right <laughs> angle. And then that, that was the angle. <laughs> but then when when we moved house, I was so attached to the old board. I, I wanted to make sure it was exactly the same when we moved it. So we measured it all properly and put it back up exactly the same, which is oh, so cool. good. Oh, cool. That's great. <laughs> it's my favorite crag. <laughs> that's awesome that's awesome um do you target a specific hold type when you're having a board session or is it just lots of variety yeah quite often a session will be focused on on something okay so yeah it, it or it, it or move type it might be you know shoulder removes or it might be undercuts or yeah it's more move type than hold type okay um because I find hold type is a bit easier to train hanging, I think. Mm. Whereas move type is a bit more going on. So it, it might even be as simple as just today's body tension session. So it's all about keeping the feet on. Mm. Or today's you know, shoulder or today's huge moves or whatever. Well, you mentioned something a few minutes ago that I can't let slip. I was actually just looking through the, the rest of the book today. I haven't read the whole thing, but um, today I finished kind of going through and looking at all the sections and just seeing what you covered in there. And uh, something popped out at me and you just mentioned it, but ankle weights. Tell me about training with ankle weights because I've never seen this before. And I just, you know, there's this image of you climbing on your board with like a massive you know, a ball of weights around your ankle. I was just like, whoa, this is different. Could, could have been filled with helium, that. <laughs> That'd be sneaky. <laughs> yeah, it's it's something I've been really into for quite a few years. I, I used to use a little weight belt, so I'd add a few kilos, so a few pounds around my waist. Um, but it, it just never really felt like it was hitting the spot because for me a lot of board climbing a lot of the point of board climbing is about working body tension and keeping your feet on as you move and holding swings so it felt like why didn't I just put a smaller amount of weight around my ankles and then every foot moves harder every swings harder and you don't need to be adding as much weight because you've got all the kind of extra leverage but being mm. your legs yeah and so it just seemed like a good well it's just something to try basically um so then I started off with, I think they were half a kilo, so a um, quarter of a pound or something. No, hang on, 2.2 .2 pounds per kilo. Yeah, so one, one pound roughly, yeah. Yeah, so I started off with about one pound, and I've sort of worked my way up until I've got five kilos, so. Per ankle? Like 10. Yeah, for Jesus. certain problems. Not, not for loads, but there'll be yeah, some yeah. problems where I, I go big on the ankle weight. So I just work my way up to that. But I have noticed in terms of body tension and keeping my feet on, on the rock, it's made an enormous difference, mm. really huge difference. Does it screw with your technique at all? That's something I would I would probably worry about or think think too much yeah. about. No, I mean, there was 
I wrote a line in the book about that. I said, um, if if you think that adding weight is something like, if you think adding weight is going to kind of mess with the way you move, then perhaps, you know, you need to think of doing another sport because you prob- probably at this point, you've been climbing so much that all that movement is so well ingrained. You're not going to, you're not going to change that mm. by, by adding weight for a session or two. Gotcha. You know, I think climbing movement is just so ingrained in you, isn't it? From we've all been climbing for a long time or, you know, even like a year's worth of indoor climbing, that's so much movement that you've learned that I think you're not going to forget that. And if you do, then, well, do another sport. (laughs) 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 You know, feasibly, if you only ever climbed with weight on and then you took it off, it might be really, it might be weird, but I don't think you want to do that. I think you want to, you want to be adding weight on board sessions just occasionally. Mm. It's a sort of a particular hard session or something. I don't think it wants to be regular because your body will just fall apart. I think. Mm. How might you decide to do an ankle weight session versus just trying a harder boulder problem at body weight? So a lot of it for me is if if I'm just feeling a bit uninspired or um, or kind of lazy, mental lazy, then it's a really good way of having a hard session for me is to just do a standard circuit of problems but mm. with added weight on. So you, you're just not having to think. You know the problems. You know you can climb them. You just have to try a lot harder. So for me, it's if my mind's not quite focused on on what I'm doing, then it's a really easy sort of way to have a very hard session without basically without thinking. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that makes so sense. So I, I tend to use it as a kind of, it's almost a backup plan if I'm just feeling a bit kind of low on focus for this session. Mm. Then I know that I can stick the anchor weights on and then, in an hour i'm just completely blasted but i've not had to really think about anything yeah. which is great you know it's lovely yeah <laughs> and how often do you do like limit bouldering or, or really hard projects on your board um it'll be at least one session a week of okay of hard stuff i'll always build in a, a volume component to the start of a session so my warm-up will include with the circuit a good number of problems okay. yeah so gotcha. i'll always do some volume i won't ever just pull on and do just try one move for two hours <laughs> fresh. Um, so there's always a volume component and then I'll always have a kind of a limit component, but that might only be one problem or that might be five problems in different styles. It, it depends how fresh I am and how busted I want to feel. Mm. For me, board sessions are really hard on my body and I'll feel tired the next day. So, um, so sometimes I do hold back if I know I'm going to, go climbing in a few days or something else sort of mm. turn turn my board session down a touch just so I know I've got a bit more in the tank when you go outside. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you this. I feel like it's it's maybe irresponsible of us to just throw out the ankle weight thing without also asking this question. <laughs> um, who is that appropriate for, do you think? Like, do you have a sense of where someone should be at with their climbing before they throw weights on their ankles and try that out? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's... Uh, it's hard to put a number on it, but I think you need to be a really confident board climber. You need to be someone that climbs a lot on boards and has done a lot of um, a lot of sort of limit sessions on boards and understands how to try really hard and kind of even how to fall off without mm. landing in a heap and all that sort of <laughs> stuff. So it, it's very hard to say, but you need to you need to have been climbing on a board for a long time, for a year or two before that's really appropriate. And to be honest, I think before that. Be useful because if you've only climbed on the board for 
a year, then you've probably got so much to gain still from just climbing on it normally. I think. Mm. Um, but yeah, it can again if you start to stagnate, it can be a brilliant way of kind of getting through that stagnant point because it's just suddenly way harder. But yeah, as as a sort of fresh board climber, I'd not recommend tying loads of weights around your ankles. <laughs> I mean, you you might injure yourself. You you might just have a really horrible fall when your feet swing off or something. So. Yeah, yeah. You do have to be careful. I want to ask you this. So we've we talked a lot in the early part of this conversation about you know the mistakes people make with finger training just how prevalent it's become in our culture. There's so much information now. People get bogged down by that. I think one of the most challenging parts, you know, we were, we were talking about like how someone who's never trained before, they're going to start a six-week cycle and expect to become awesome from training for six weeks. Um, yeah. I think one of the trickiest parts is expectations with this stuff. You know, as you said, our connective tissue is so slow to adapt and you really don't start to see massive, you know, gains from that until you're months into this whole process. How do you, this is a really broad question, so feel free to take it in whatever direction makes the most sense to you, but how would you coach someone through expectations when it comes to finger training? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's probably the same as how you'd coach someone through expectations with their climbing, isn't it? I think um, I think a lot of people that go climbing, they, they love seeing progress and they're desperate to see more and more progress. Um, and I know, like, okay, I, I kind of always have been. Um, it's it's really natural. I think it's why a lot of people get so into climbing, isn't it? Because you can sort of see all that progress, see yourself improving. But you, you do need to be aware that progress, it takes an awfully long time. <laughs> you know, you'll look back over the last five years and then you'll be like, oh, yeah, look, I've definitely progressed. But if you look back over two weeks, you might have got worse, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right. I, I think it, it's it's just... You just have to put it all into perspective um, and kind of try and take the long view and not focus too much on every individual session. I think that's the most important thing to do. Mm. You have to trust that it is going to work, but session on session, it might not feel like it's working. Mm. But I mean, it, it can be infuriating when you feel like you're really busting in gut and nothing's happening <laughs> um, but I think with, with training the really important thing is if, if you can enjoy any part of it then you'll just want to keep doing it um, and it, it doesn't need to feel like a kind of a chore it can be really fun you know it can be trying really hard can be fun and mm -hmm. I think uh, getting into that space with it is really useful for people um, but then I think after a period when you start to see improvement the motivation to keep training comes way more easily because you've seen that kind of initial little bump of, yeah. uh, of improvement. And, and I think at that point, it becomes a lot easier for people to sort of keep going with it. Yeah, trust the process. Yeah, yeah, which is, it's such a cliche, but it is a cliche for a reason because it is exactly what you need to do. <laughs> you know? Do you ever take a chunk of time completely off of finger training in your year? Yeah, I, yeah. I normally do end up having a couple of weeks off, off all climbing, really. Um, but I, I never particularly schedule it in. But normally, I do get to a point where there's either something going on or my motivation's just sort of gone. 
and I just there's nothing that I'm particularly excited by. So then I'll just not climb for a bit. Mm. And for me, and I mean, I've been climbing for 25 years, so I, I know it comes back. So yeah. I just a couple of weeks off, it's sort of nothing, and I'm, I quite enjoy doing it now. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> but great. It, it's not a, it isn't regular for me at all. Okay. You know, um, Adam Andrew always says he has, I think it's a month off per year. He'll always have a month off. And for me, I, I mean, I don't want to schedule in a month off, but if I get to a point where I just don't want to climb for a few weeks, then it's, I'm totally happy with it. Hmm. And more often than not, that happens in the summer for me because it's, it's very hot. It's not really much good rock climbing to do. And I'm quite happy to just relax for a bit. Yeah. Um, so I think it is really useful to do. It's, I mean, yeah, I like going running as well. So the summer's great for running. Okay. Um, so it's quite easy. For, I feel it's easy for me to not go climbing for a bit. But for a lot of people, it's sort of, they just couldn't imagine not having it, not having climbing. But I don't know. I guess I've done it for a quarter of a century. So I'm <laughs> quite happy to not do it for a bit. You know, so I think it's easier for me to, to not climb because I've, I've done so much of it. Yeah, um, yeah. And then I've had, over the years, I've had loads of time off if I add it up, and it's it's not like you get worse, you know. Take a right. couple of sessions, and you're kind of back to where you were. Mm. I mean, probably better, to be honest. It's not something to be scared of at all. I think it's, it would be useful for most people to have more time off than they do, I think. But Yeah. Yeah, man, I think... I think um... I was one of those people that was just scared to take time off. I, I don't know what I thought was going to yeah. happen. I thought I was just going to lose everything, I guess. Um, until I had my first finger injury. That was like the the yeah. real changing point for me. I had a bad poly injury in 2017. And it ended up taking, you know, I, I made it worse before I figured out how to make it better. And I had to take, you know, a couple months off, basically. Um right cumulatively before I started very gentle loading again and whatever else. And, um, yeah. within eight months, I think I had worked back up and broken all my PRs on the hangboard and I was coming off of like a really yeah. strong trip. And that was such a light bulb moment for me to realize like, Oh my God, a week off is nothing because I just took <laughs> yeah. months off and worked right back up to where I left off and I feel better than ever. So Yeah. Yeah. Once you go through that, it's way less scary, the prospect of taking some time off. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think having a hand forced once is really useful, <laughs> isn't it? Because you, you just, you could appreciate it almost, can't you? Yeah. yeah I, I think it's hard for a lot of people because climbing is such a kind of social thing, isn't it? And for some people, if they're not going climbing, then that's a whole sort of friendship group that's just mm. suddenly not there for them. So it is, I can see that, you know, the concerns about not, about just taking time off. Mm. Maybe you just have to go and be late for a month. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a good opportunity to go into support mode. Although I, I'm not proud of this, but I'll admit this. I, I was, um, I, I always knew I probably would get a finger injury at some point, And I thought I would be able to use that time really productively and support my friends and go belay and whatever else. And it was just too hard for me at the time. I was coming yeah, off of like the yeah. best trip of my life and had really broken through some some plateaus that had been kind of stubborn plateaus for a long time. And then I got injured and I just, I kind of had to step away from climbing for a while. And right. I think there was, you know, there's a, some immaturity there and things along those lines. It was a lot of like bruised ego, but at the same time, I just, it's what I needed to do to get through it and recover. Yeah. Ah, yeah. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's okay. You know? I, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 I think also it's, um, 
in doing that, you can discover that you enjoy doing other things a lot as well, can't mm. you? Mm-hmm. Because you, suddenly you, you're placing those things so you can you can do other stuff that's actually really fun. Yeah. Because, you know, lo- there's loads of stuff going on in life that's pretty good. And <laughs> a lot of the times you, you sort of, you will push some of it aside, won't you, for, yeah. for climbing. And right. I think as I've got older, I've just started appreciating that there's loads of other stuff that I kind of want to spend my time doing now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've, I feel that as well. My second injury was so different too, because I I knew that I would be able to come back because I'd been through it before. And I just felt totally at ease. And I just remember really enjoying that summer and just swimming at the (laughs) river and reading books and hanging out with friends and drinking more beer. It was, it was amazing. It was like a really good mental recharge the second time around because I had that, Mm. you know, that, that knowledge that I just wasn't stressed about it. Like, yeah, I'll I'll get it back. It's okay. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And then, yeah, enjoying the time off. Yeah, which, well, that's it. I think for a lot of times, um, you can get really wrapped up in climbing and it becomes, it, I mean, it's it's always kind of fun, but it becomes kind of, it means more to you than just going out and enjoying it. And that can, it can be a bit of a weight to bear sometimes. So stepping away from that can be brilliant, can't it? Mm. Yeah. Well, Ned, I want to get to some uh, some listener questions here. I got a lot of really good questions for you from listeners and i think this is my favorite one this is from gunter and this goes back to expectations and you know what is realistic in our finger training but this is something i was really curious about was to hear about your actual personal progression in your finger strength with all this knowledge of training that you have and all this experience and i'll just read gunter's question because he asked this perfectly Gunter writes, I'm curious about the details of Ned's finger strength progression. How long has he been hangboarding? How much of his finger strength increased over that period of time? And how well have those gains translated to climbing performance? Um, Does he think a person can maximize their finger strength by just climbing? Or does he think that targeted finger training is a necessity? Um, So let's start at the beginning there. How long have you been hangboarding and how much has, has your finger strength increased and changed um, from a more targeted finger first training approach? Uh, yes, I mean, I started hangboarding seriously when I was about about 19. So yeah, pop, yeah, I'd say when I was about 19. So when I was at uni is when I started really fingerboarding um, and I'm 34 now. So you know, quite a lot. Quite 15 a lot years of, of hanging off your head. <laughs> quite a lot of dangling. Wouldn't it be fascinating yeah. to add all those minutes up? <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally, yeah. What a strange thing to <laughs> do, I... to, to spend your life dangling from a wooden edge. Why, <laughs> why are we so into it? <laughs> it's great, isn't it? <laughs> um, yeah, so I mean, I've, I've, I've done it a lot. Um, and I think my progress, as I explained earlier, I think at, at first, the the fingerboard specific progress was was quite good and quite and sort of strong correlation between fingerboarding a lot and getting stronger fingers. But that did level off. And then the next the next sort of rise in my performance I think came more from climbing on boards more. Um, but I still feel like there's very small bits of progress I can make on a fingerboard. Um, and at this point for me a lot of my fingerboarding is about just maintaining and not going backwards um, as much as it is about trying to improve because i think i've i've probably almost maxed out how hard i can hold on now mm. i don't think my genetics are ever going to let me get loads stronger in the fingers um, 
So a lot of fingerboarding for me now is about maintaining and trying not to get injured, trying to sort of keep things healthy and keeping myself tuned up. So so when I want to try hard, the problem is it's there. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it's hard to put numbers on in terms of, you know, how, how strong my fingers have got over the years. But I don't know. I feel like I've had steady but very, very slow progress mm. over over 15 years. But I think it is probably tapering off now. And I don't know whether that's just because the age I've got to or whether that's because I've just reached my kind of genetic limit, maybe. Um, but then the last bit to his question was about finger strength gains relating to climbing. Yeah, um, does does Ned think that a person can maximize their finger strength by just climbing? Or does he think that targeted finger training is necessary? And I want to add another layer to that, which is, you know, can they, I, I guess, taking dead hanging and board climbing, like, can you maximize your finger strength from just climbing on a board? Is dead hanging necessary? Um, yeah, ra- wrap all that into one question. Yeah, I think just going rock climbing, I don't think you'd ever maximize your finger strength. But I think it, it might appear that your fingers are getting better and better because you're just learning all the movement skill mm. and everything else is improving this rock is just so so complicated i don't think we often give ourselves credit for how complex rock climbing is and like all the things that we're doing when we, when we climb but i think generally when you rock climb you're never taxing your fingers to their limit generally maybe more so on granite but even then you've got footholds you've got you've got your body taking weight so i think really if you want to absolutely maximize your finger strength you need to be training it. And I think either dead hanging or climbing on a board are both really good for that. Dead hanging is nice because it's simple. Board climbing is nice because it's good fun. And it's not to say one's better than the other. Mm. Um, but I think you to completely maximise your finger strength output, you need to be doing one of those two, I think. Okay. I think just climbing a rock, I don't think really cuts it. Um, but it's... You know, if if you only if you have the opportunity to only climb at rock forever, then do that because it's fun. <laughs> <You know? laughs> if, if I could just be at any crag I wanted, any day I wanted, and never train, then that's just probably what I do. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, yeah, but training's just a way of kind of maximizing the fun that you can get out of your climbing time. I think. Mm. I want to add my own just my own thought here, this just popped into my head and hopefully it's valuable to share this with people. But um, I think the reason that dead hanging has been especially useful for me is that I'm, again, I'm such an engineer. I'm always, I'm just obsessed with efficiency. And I think one of my strengths in climbing is really dialing in minutia and micro beta and making climbs as efficient as possible. But by doing that, you're directly in opposition to what you need to do to get stronger fingers from climbing on the rock, right? Like you're making the moves easier and relaxing as much as possible versus pulling as hard as possible. So those two goals are kind of like diametrically opposed. And when I just get on, get on a hangboard, it's, it's so easy for me to just try really, really hard. Like as hard as I possibly can. It's so simple. The goal is not to make it easy. The goal is not to do more moves in a row. It's just to try hard. So for for me, that is a really valuable tool for that reason. Yeah. 
And, and some people are opposite. They like try really hard as a default when they climb and they don't pay attention to micro beta. And those are the people that get really yeah. strong from just climbing. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but they never climb as hard as they could. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I, I think that the trying really hard part's very interesting because I think for a lot of people, uh, the, the limiting factor is actually psychological and they're kind of, they never use 100% of their strength because they're just not capable of trying really hard. Um, which I, I find that really interesting. But yeah, as you say, training is a great way to almost learn about how hard you can pull. Mm. Teach yourself that you can pull harder than you think. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I'm kind of in agreement with you in that climbing's about making it easy and training's about making it hard. So <laughs> I think they're, they're both really important, aren't mm, they? Mm-hmm. I'll ask the next listener question. This is from Mihail, and I think we've already answered this, um, but I'll ask it anyway and see if you have additional thoughts. But Mihail asked, my favorite part of the book, except for the great pictures, of course, was about passive and active gripping. If someone comes training with you, what would be the difference in training programs between a person with or without the balance between passive and active gripping? So I guess to kind of rephrase that, like if someone's really good at one versus the other, how might their their training approach change? Is it as simple as just doing more of the one that they're bad at? Yeah, I think for me, it's just about, yeah, doing more, spending more time doing the one that you wouldn't naturally choose to do. Um, if only if that's useful for the goals that you have in mind. Because, mm, mm-hmm. you know, for some people it might not be at all. If if you only ever climb on open-handed pockets and that's all you're interested in, then why would you bother <laughs> training anything else? <laughs> but but if you want to become more well-rounded, then it is just about putting time into doing what you wouldn't naturally do when you climb. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for that. That's great. This is from Maurice. Um in his book, he mentions that he doesn't train full crimp on the fingerboard as he tends to draw off his skin on the side of his index fingernail. I have the same problem. Thus, the question, does Ned use the thumb on the side of the holds while fingerboarding or dead hanging or no thumb at all while fingerboarding or dead hanging? So in the book, I have a funny little distinction between a crimp and a full crimp. So I say that a full crimp is when your thumb's wrapped over. Okay. And a crimp a crimp grip is when your fingers are in exactly the same position, but your thumb's not wrapped over. Okay. So for me, that means my pinky is bent at quite an acute angle and the uh, first joint of it, the, the distal interphalangeal joint, is um, is straight, not bent, if that makes sense. I can show you down the video, but I, <laughs> I'm struggling <laughs> to describe it. Right. So, so right. for me, a, a full crimp is with the thumb over, and then a crimp is the fingers in it, that exact same position, but just without the thumb. Right. So, so not a half crimp. It's it's in the exact same position as a full crimp, but just without the thumb on top of the index finger. Yeah. So so I do loads of training like that, just because if I if I put my thumb on, I just tear my cuticle off on my index finger. It seems to be really, I don't know, paper thin reason. So I just, I try and avoid training with it because otherwise I just have a split bleeding cuticle the whole time. Where does your thumb go? Uh, it, it just sort of, um, just 
sits really awkwardly off to the side <laughs> um, <laughs> kind of ready to pounce on the index <laughs> finger but ne- never quite being allowed to so yeah it's not it's not draped down it's it's almost in an active position okay but, but it's not, not on the hold just, at all no no I, okay. I, I i try and keep it off gotcha um, just so the fingers are doing the work well, um, one thing that I used to do that I found really good benefits from, because I was full crimping on the hangboard, but getting a lot of irritation in my dip joint in my index finger from like that added pressure with the thumb and almost hyperextending that part of my index yeah. finger. So I just, I tuck my thumbs underneath, but make sure that my thumb is contacting like the underside of my my fingers at the PIP uh, joint. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, it works really well. It's really hard at first. Like you really have to check your ego and take a lot of weight off yeah. relative to, to what you're used to. But um, I think I got really good crimp strength gains from that. Yeah, I think that's perfect because it's it's forcing your fingers into a way more acute angle in order mm-hmm. to keep your thumb in contact. And I think it's when you're crimping with your fingers at an acute angle is when they get their strongest. I think it's uncomfortable, but mechanically it's when they're at their strongest. So mm. I think that's great. And it takes all the kind of um, muscles of your palm to keep your hand up in that position. So training those is really useful for really sort of grabbing on hard toes. Mm. This is a question from Simon. Ned is known for his physical training, but can he attribute any breakthroughs in his climbing over the years to changes in his mindset or other lifestyle factors? Yeah, it's interesting. I think... um, I think generally I tend to climb well when I'm not particularly worried about the outcome. So, you know, if I, if I really want to do something, I can get quite stressed about it and not climb that well. Whereas um, now, now I'm a bit older, I'm just sort of a bit less bothered about it all. And I feel like I can slip into climbing a bit more fluidly quite easily because ultimately I don't, I don't really care anymore. You know, I feel like I've climbed enough rocks that, climbing one more rock's not really going to change my life so I'm, I'm way more kind of removed from the whole thing these days and i think that's i mean it's that classic thing if you really want it then that's when it doesn't work for you and mm. um, i think it's it's basically just that it, it feels to me like i've just got a bit of a distance now from kind of wanting to really do stuff and then as a result i'm just able to do stuff because i'm just not bothered <laughs> it's funny yeah I yeah like I, I sort of I feel like I can climb quite well now, despite having more stuff on my plate and kind of more things going on, just because I'm really relaxed about it. And I, I tend to just love being out when I'm out. Uh, whereas when I was younger, I was really kind of very into trying to perform and I got all wrapped up in it. And it, it was sometimes quite difficult to put things together, even though I should be able to, just because I was so stressing about it. Yeah. Um, but then I, I think loads of that can come from kind of external stresses so not even climbing related stuff there's other stuff going on in your life that's causing you trouble you're not going to be able to climb as well whereas you know like i'm in a good place now we're married and we're expecting a baby and stuff so i'm just it's ace you know so i can just (laughs) i can just tick over and climb and it's great (laughs) Uh, that's amazing (laughs) it's not all this other stuff going on that's great on that note, was it uh, was it difficult for you when Shauna was in her Olympic prep? Um, I, I can't really imagine what what that might be like to be dating or engaged to an Olympic climber. Just that level of focus and and whatever. Um, what was that like to to be on that side of it in the supporting role for 
for her with that goal? Yeah, I mean, I, I put my climbing kind of on the back burner for a while because it was, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't bad, you know, it wasn't hard work particularly, but it was, it was a big thing to be dealing with. Um, just wanting to help her out and be there for her and do stuff for her so she wasn't stressed about things. It, it was, yeah, it was definitely, um, it was kind of a big event that we had to get through. <laughs> but um, it was never, it wasn't really bad at all, but it, it was just quite intense for a while, especially with it getting delayed and COVID coming along in the middle of it and stuff. It was kind of quite arduous at times, but I mean, it was it was really cool to sort of see the process and see you know see her training for it dealing with all the injuries and all the stuff she had it was amazing to see and because she totally crushed it given everything that was thrown at her she did really well mm. but yeah it was i mean we're very glad it's over definitely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah that's awesome thanks for sharing that a um, couple more questions here. This one's from actually. I've got one from Andrew about BMI and weight and height, and I think we I think we answered it. So I'll skip that one, Andrew. Hopefully, we answered your question earlier. Um, this is from Alistair. Does Ned train contact strength? You know, we've talked a lot about dead hanging, and of course, there's some element of contact strength in board climbing because you're dead pointing and things like that. But do you, yeah? How how do you think about contact strength training in particular? Yeah, I, I don't train it aside from climbing on a board. Okay. Um, that's Yeah, that's the only time I really consider it, I guess. Um, I think board climbing is great for it because on hard moves, you have to move quickly. And you have to grab on quickly. And it's the most relevant way of training it to climbing, I think. Mm. Especially because it's, it's contact strength on a whole range of pole types. It's not just on, say, a campus from... You know, you've got to develop your contact strength on pinches, on every hold type, crimps, pockets, whatever. Um, so for me, yeah, it's all about doing that on the board. But I think boards are the best way to train it. Really. Mm. Cool. This is a question from Andrew. I'd be interested to hear Ned's thoughts on the importance of flexibility, particularly for tall climbers. And what is his bare minimum stretching session? What does that look like? Um, the importance of it, I mean, it's just, oh, it's so important. I, I can't stress enough how important I think flexibility is. Not not just for tall climbers, I think for everybody. Um, I think you, you tend to notice it a lot with inflexible tall climbers because they look funny when they're all kind of limmy and <laughs> don't fit in. Um, but I think for everybody it's important. And generally I say that stretching will benefit every climber. I think it, it's just so, so important. And it drives me mad to see really strong climbers that are inflexible. Mm. Just, it blows my mind that you'd get into that position. It just seems so <laughs> mad. Um, <laughs> so that, I think it's just, it's so important for everyone. How do you fit it into your day? You're a busy guy. You train a lot. You've got a wife and a kid on the way. You've got a business. Where do you fit in flexibility, stretching, whatever? Yeah, for me, I'm quite... Um, sort of quite a routine-based individual. So for me, it's just part of my pre-bedtime routine, basically. I just find it really relaxing. and I'll always do some stretching before I go to bed. Um, it's just sort of how I wind down at the end of the day, I guess. Um, which it gets me onto that bare minimum stretching session. And I think bare minimum is just 
do something <laughs> or stretch <laughs> you know do something um i think anything that you do is useful and again the more consistent you are with it the more useful it is mm. i'll normally stretch now for you know, 15 to 20 minutes every night more or less but then some some days if i'm not training and i feel really stiff i'll do it like an hour session okay. just stretching but i i think i'm fortunate in that i I did a lot of stretching when I was young, when I was maybe a teenager, up into my mid-twenties. I did absolutely loads. I did probably getting on for an hour a day. Wow. So I had the time and I was psyched. And I think doing it at that point when I was sort of developing and growing sort of stuck with me now. So I can really maintain it without not doing a huge amount. Mm. And I, also, I think the way I climb kind of really uses it. So even if I, I was to stop stretching, if I keep climbing, I'm still using my body in that way. And I think it will stay fairly flexible right. anyway. I think if, if you were just to climb with it, then it's really easy to maintain. But then I think you do occasionally see climbers that are incredibly flexible on the floor, but then when they're climbing, they continue to just campus and not put their feet on. <laughs> it's sort of irrelevant. <laughs> so I think it, you have to be aware that you've got the flexibility and you've got to use it. It's not just being flexible won't make you better, but climbing with more flexibility will make you better. Mm. Yeah, that's a great distinction. I, I think it's like finger training in a way. I think it's really, it's really hard to commit to it until you've seen some gains from it, you know, and then it's easier to Definitely. stick with it. But yeah. you talk about it being relaxing. And unfortunately, I think there's like... Um, there's some amount of time required to commit to it when it just feels absolutely horrible before it be finally becomes relaxing. <laughs> yeah. And that's yeah. where I always just bail is just halfway through that, that period. Yeah, I think you're right. But I think it, it's really easy to set yourself little stretching goals to achieve. And then I think if you have the motivation of, you know, like, bending forward, stood on a step and touching the floor or something. Mm. You, you can just set yourself a, one little goal. And even if it's just for one thing, it's still, you know, it's something you can achieve. And then all of a sudden you'll be like, oh, look, I can improve. Mm. So I think, yeah, kind of goal setting and consistency is really important. But it, yeah, it does feel a bit horrible. <laughs> <laughs> do you do anything while you're stretching in the evenings? Do you listen to music or watch a show or anything? Read a book? Yeah, um, normally I listen to a podcast, actually. Um, so we don't have a TV at home. It's boring or whatever. Or something. Yeah, so they, we don't, yeah, we don't, we don't watch anything. A lot of people think that's weird, but same, same with me. I've, I haven't had a TV uh, in great. my house for, for years and I watch things on my laptop every amazing. once in a while, but yeah, it, it is. Yeah. It's great to not, ha to not have that as your default. Yeah. Yes, totally. Yeah. Yeah. So for me, I, I normally have a podcast or some music on it stretch and just hold stretches for like 10 deep breaths mm. move on to another one just find it really relaxing what have you been listening to uh lately podcast wise a lot of kind of sciencey stuff okay yeah yeah like stuff about the environment sciencey things quite often um, too much current affairs stuff can kind of get me down a bit especially at the night right yeah if you're winding <laughs> so, down for bed you don't want to be catching up on yeah, news do you <laughs> exactly so it's got to be something that's kind of engaging but not yeah not horrific <laughs> <laughs> and there's a lot of that around unfortunately currently 
what's an example? What's a show that you like to listen to in the evenings? Um, it's a load of good, uh, yeah, I don't have a phone on me. A load of good BBC science ones. I don't know the names off the top of my head, but just like rundowns of kind of current science and what's going on. Okay. Um, but yeah, a lot of them are on the on BBC Sounds. Well, maybe you know, you and I can email later, and I can get a list of some yeah, of your favorites, of and I'll, I'll yeah, add, yeah, yeah, I'll add links yeah. to them for people. Yeah. The nerd links. <laughs> this question is from FD Climbs. What is Ned's favorite bouldering location within the Lake District, and why? Oh, within the lakes. Oh, I was just going to say Fontainebleau, but it's <laughs> not in the lakes, unfortunately. Uh, I mean, I think yeah, I think Font's the best place in the world. By miles, <laughs> can't beat it. But uh, in the lakes, there's a place called St. Bee's Head, which is on the far west coast of the Lake District, which is a kind of weird uh, coastal sandstone venue. So it's all sort of wave washed sandstone boulders. I just absolutely love it there. It's really unique rock. Uh, you're right by the sea. Cool place. Not much hard stuff to do, but you can just boulder a bit and go and swim in the sea. It's amazing. Mm. I think a lot of the rock in the Lake District is quite sort of volcanic rocks. It's quite crimpy and a bit gross, whereas that sandstone is just lovely, really smooth, lovely rock. Really cool place. It's worth looking at some pictures. Or uh, if you're ever in the UK, it's worth a visit. It's really nice. Really amazing. I'd love to get some photos from you of that of that area. I'll share yeah, them on Instagram. Do you think you're capable of climbing the next grade? You've climbed V15. You've done, I think, at least a couple of them. Um, is V16 a goal for you? And what do you think you would need to change or focus on to reach the next grade? Yeah, I feel like, yeah, V16 is, I think I, if I was really bothered about doing it and I had the time to sort of project something, I think mean, I might be able to climb a V16 if it suited me perfectly. But the reality of it is, I'm not that bothered and I don't have the time. <laughs> you know, I, I feel like um, if if I find a V15 that I'm interested in and I, I like it and I can get to it a few times, then I can climb at that level just about still maybe. Um, but to go harder than that is, yeah, seems unrealistic really. Mm. But, I mean, when I started climbing, if you climbed V11, that was just... It was almost unheard of for people in the UK to climb the 11 in the 90s. So well, I, I just feel so kind of surprised to be where I'm at with my climbing, given where I started and what was sort of possible when I started. It just seems absolutely mad to me. I can go out and climb V11s that back then were some of the hardest things around. I mean, I guess AB was probably the hardest grade then, so V13. I can go out and climb V13 now, which seems absolutely insane to me if i think back to being a child growing up reading the magazines and stuff and i can go and climb those problems now and it just seems mental so the thought of getting any better now is just like i'm really bothered you know yeah that's awesome <laughs> I feel like i've sort of I've achieved so much more than i ever imagined i would when i was younger that it doesn't really bother me oh. um, I love that, man. That, I mean, that's your content. That's that's like the place that we all hope to reach, you know? I can kind yeah. of imagine reaching that for myself because I know exactly what you mean. I have like the same, um, my idea of what is like unreachable isn't really that outrageous in the current context of how hard climbing's gotten, you know? It's like, 
I never mm. imagined. I remember thinking like if I ever climb 13A and V10, like I could die happy, you know? And I thought those wow. two things were equally yeah. hard, which is kind of funny. Right. Um, <laughs> but then you do those things and, you know, it's kind of like what's next. But but yeah, I, that's just awesome to hear that you've reached that point where you can you can feel that way. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> Thanks. I, I mean, I think probably a part of that is, I think when you become a parent, I think, a big bit of your ego just has to die because <laughs> <laughs> you're not, you're suddenly not important. And I think I'm bracing myself for that. <laughs> but also, I mean, I, I, yeah, I, I've got to travel loads and climb loads of cool stuff. You know, we've, we've had a pretty good life for the last 10 years together. It's been, okay, so, you know, I'm not, I'm not really that bothered about trying to go out and climb a harder problem. It would feel the same as climbing a slightly easier problem, but it's just harder. <laughs> and I mean, also, interestingly, at the, at the top end, when you're climbing at your absolute limit, so much of that becomes about how well your body fits the boulder problem. So feasibly, I could just travel the world until I found a V16 that just fitted me perfectly, maybe. And then it might not even feel that bad. Mm. Or I could try... As I've been doing in front, I could try an 8A to a V11 that doesn't really suit me and it feels impossible. So, <laughs> you know, it's so, when you're trying really hard on boulders, it's just like so much of it's kind of just comes down to how you build, mm. even how the weather is. There's all these factors in it. Yeah, but you can you can find kind of the same challenge at a different grade w- without having to see uh, that very Yeah, tough yeah. And I mean... Um, yeah, I'm still interested in trying hard and doing really cool boulders, definitely. But yeah, I just think that the idea of kind of enjoying it more because you're climbing a harder grade for me has run its course and I don't feel like it would mean anything to me now. Mm. Whereas if I could go out and climb an amazing looking boulder that's a bit easier, then that's great. Or locally, if I can find something new and put up a new boulder problem, it's really cool. And that's that brilliant. No, I love doing that. Mm. Well, I want to ask one more question about your climbing because I teased this early on and I, I have to check this box because I said I would come back to it. Um, but you, you've climbed V15. You've also flashed V14. Uh, you've, you flashed a boulder problem called trust issues in Rocklands, which is just amazing. Like there's so often a much bigger spread between what people can ultimately red point and what they can flash. What would you credit that to? Was that just like a perfect moment where everything kind of came together or do you have like a strategy or a mental dialogue that you're kind of practicing before going into a flash, like, you know, something you're telling yourself or anything like that before trying a, a hard flash? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I've always, everything I try, I'll always try and give it a good flash because I really like the challenge and the kind of the unknown aspect of it. So like every climbing day when I go out, I, I'll always think about what I'm doing and really concentrate on my first go on a problem. So I'm quite familiar with, with doing that. Um, and in Rocklands, I just got very lucky that I found a really cool boulder that had a good crew on it with all the beta. And it turns out the sequence on it fitted me really well. You kind of, you almost have to do the splits between two heel hooks, which is more or less my ideal boulder problem. And then lock off really deep, which is, more or less my ideal boulder problem. So it was just this sort of perfect setup. Um, had all the beta, holds were chalked. 
and it yeah it just it just kind of worked out on that one border problem but my approach is always to try and fashion so i'm always so whenever i walk up to anything i'm having a think and have a look around i'll always try and put in a really good effort on the first go always so it was just it came quite naturally um but i didn't pull on thinking yeah i'm gonna flush this Woo. I had no idea, you know, I just thought, oh, let's have a really good go. I think I can get my heel on there and then let's see what happens. Hmm. And I just kept going and then got to the top and almost let go. So I was like, whoa, I'm at the top. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then kept going. Uh, yeah, I got shouted at. Hold on. <laughs> yeah, I, got, I, I really got shouted at from below and that helped. But, uh, <laughs> But yeah, it's always, it's a huge part of bouldering for me is trying to fast stuff. I think a lot of that comes from doing the comps when I was younger mm. and trying to kind of get good at doing problems quickly. Um, the mindset is just really look at what you're doing and look look where the holds are and think about sequence. But so many times you'll, you'll imagine a sequence and you pull on and it just feels completely different. And then, you know, it's just totally wrong when you fall off but at least you've had the go and you've sort of put mm. the effort into trying to fight it but i know a lot of people just aren't bothered you know they'll, they'll just do the top few moves do the middle bit do the bottom bit try and link it whereas i'll always start at the bottom okay just find that just find that quite fun yeah, it's an extra cool. kind of extra challenge to the climbing um and it's like a rare treat if you flash a problem it's this kind of rare thing that only happens sometimes and everything comes together so yeah, wherever I go, I always try and flush it. It's, yeah, it's just I really like the challenge of it. Ned, when you look back at your life of climbing to this point, what are you most proud of? And this could be specific boulder problems, accomplishments, first ascents, or it could be you know building this business, writing the book, any number of things. But what what are the things that really stand out to you that you feel proud of to this point? Yeah, I mean, I think. I think Beast Maker in general is is really cool, um, and then also the the book because I feel like climbing the whole climbing scene and everything about climbing has been such a sort of positive influence on me that I I feel like with the book and with Beast Maker it's sort of adding something back to the scene in a way. I know it it kind of isn't because I'm selling something back to the scene, but I still feel like we're adding to the community. Mm. Um, which is really nice for me to know that I can kind of try and give something back. It's really cool because climbing has been a massive sort of positive for me over the years. So I think I'm, I am really proud of that. And the fact that Beastmaker has become so well regarded and so popular, that's really cool. Especially because we started making it in the shed. <laughs> it's really cool. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and in terms of climbing, I mean, I think, yeah, I don't know. I think the fact that, I still quite like it. I still love doing it. You know, I still, I still love going out and climbing and I've, I've met loads of great people through it. Um, I don't think any climb in particular really means more than any other. But yeah, I don't know. Um, I think the fact that I still like doing it is is cool. It's <laughs> totally embedded in it. And, yeah. all of it. and I, you know, I think I, I'll imagine getting older and still really enjoying it, which... Mm. It's cool. It'll keep me active. <laughs> and I, I'm kind of imagining a situation where we've got a kid that wants to go climbing and we get to go out together and hang out in the woods, which would be really cool. 
don't know if it will work out like that. Maybe they'll want to play soccer. You know. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know that will be interesting, won't it? But yeah, I just can't help but imagine like if your kid does love climbing, how strong are that kid's fingers going to be? <laughs> just going to be. Yeah, people, people keep saying total pressure. Oh, I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or they'll hate it. Yeah, but people keep saying that. I think that the only issue we have is its shoulders might be a bit big when it's coming out. I <laughs> know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I don't know if if it enjoys climbing. Then I imagine it would be dead cool to kind of introduce someone to climbing mm. and then watch them kind of develop and grow and <laughs> hopefully enjoy it. I think that'd be really cool. So a lot of our friends have had kids. And, they take their kids climbing and it just looks so much fun. They've got this little kind of micro version of themselves zooming around <laughs> in the rocks. It's really cool. That's awesome. That's yeah. awesome. When are you guys uh, expecting? It's the end of May. End of May. Late May. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So clock's ticking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's exciting. Um, yeah, it's cool. Yeah. What is next for Beastmaker? Uh, so currently we're we're trying to work a bit harder on more handholds. So we want to do, we want to get more board handholds made. So we're doing some pockets currently, we've got three finger and two finger pockets. We're doing some monos. We've got a load of really comfortable jugs because no one really makes jugs for boards. Um, so we're working at a load more handholds for boards. Cool. Uh, in terms of fingerboards, still, I think we're just going to stick with what we've got for now with fingerboards and concentrate on a few more holds for now. Um, so our production's sort of limited by the machines that we've got. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, for the time being, it's a, a lot more. Yeah. <laughs> Dinner's ready. Sorry. Um, <laughs> yeah, for the time being, it's a, it's a lot more kind of on the handhold side of things. And we're hoping to get a really good board set up, kind of finalised in, in production, hopefully. Okay. Awesome. It's a bit of faff with the machines, but. We've got some cool new holes. I think the pockets we've got are lovely. They're really nice. So hopefully we can continue on that theme and get some really nice kind of more unusual holds coming out. But all, all symmetrical, all for, for training on. Cool. Very cool. Well, man, it's it's been a real pleasure. I've been very greedy with you and you've been very generous with with uh, with your time. Um, but this has been awesome. I've really loved getting to know you. Really fun to ask you all these questions. And you just have done an amazing job with this book. I think it's just beautifully laid out. Thanks. It's it's concise, it's thorough, but also simple. It's really digestible to read it. And yeah, I, I think I expected it. I didn't know what to expect. I thought it would be a little bit more specific in the weeds and it really just is a holistic approach to getting better at climbing for anyone you know for a newer climber or for someone like me who's been doing it for a long time and still has all these questions and um yeah thank you thank you for this time today and thanks for the work that you do yeah no worries i'm really glad that you kind of that's how you felt about the book that's great yeah, yeah it's so kind of nerve-wracking to release that kind of i bet really <laughs> <laughs> yeah kind of put it put it all out on display and not really know what, what people are going to think especially after covid because you know we you know, see people and people <laughs> read much of it so it's really great to, to hear all the positive feedback awesome um, yeah and then yeah i mean yeah thanks yeah and thanks for sort of giving it a shout out as well it's really kind of you of course of course happy to um where can people find the book on that note and where can people follow along with you 
the book, you can get the book off Amazon. Um, ideally, you'd buy it from somewhere else. I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What gets uh, What gets you the most money in your in your pocket? I'd love to. Well, uh, yeah. That the problem is in in North America to get the most money to me, you'd have to buy off the, the publisher's website, which is UK based, and then you'd end up paying a lot for shipping. Got it. So it's okay. probably not ideal to do that. But there is there's a palette of books on its way, or it may have arrived to an American distributor. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll get a link sent to you for where to buy it from, but it, there is US distribution now. So Perfect. hopefully people can buy it without an enormous shipping fee. Um, and then Sean or I are due to be in Salt Lake. We're doing a talk at the front. Um, and we can give you the details of that. I mean, I guess you're in Texas, but <laughs> you know, if people want to come, we're going to do a talk yeah. about, about training and about the book. And that's going to be at the front in Salt Lake. Oh, that's awesome. I will I will try to make it. I'm actually leaving here soon and heading to St. George. So I won't be in Salt Lake, okay. but I'll, I'll be within range, you know, maybe four hours away okay. or something. So We can send the details over. Um, yeah, please do. Yeah, so Sean has got some, some work over there. And then I'm going to head over as well, whether and we'll do this. Yeah, do this kind of book launch thing in the US because now we've got stock over there. Uh, we're hoping people can get hold of it more easily. Awesome. Yeah, so uh, we'll let you know when that is, and then you've got all the dates. Um, and hopefully we'll see you in real life. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I'd love it. That'd be awesome. Um, well, thanks again, man. I'll shoot you an email soon, and we can go from there. But yeah, thank you so much for your time today. Um, really appreciate you doing this. And to everyone yeah, listening. Good to meet you. Yeah, you too. You too. Yeah, and thanks um, everyone for the questions and what that says. Yeah, some really good questions. Thank you guys for that. We didn't get to all of them. There's a couple that I think we covered, and then there was a couple more that were so specific that they didn't quite feel right. I, I think they would have right. taken us, you know, into the weeds a little bit too far uh, for this yeah, conversation. Okay. Um, but yeah, thank you everyone for listening. I will put links to Ned's Instagram and to the book and to Beastmaker, all the things in the show notes at thenuggetclimbing.com, and I'll try to get some of those photos from Ned and share those on Instagram this week so you guys can see him in action on some of these boulder problems and things. But mm -hmm. um, thanks everyone for listening and thanks again to Ned. And uh, hope you enjoy the rest of your time in Fontainebleau. I hope you get more amazing weather and I hope you enjoy your dinner before it gets cold. <laughs> <laughs> I don't get towed up too much. <laughs> no, it's smelling good. <laughs> All right, man, that's it. Thank you. Yeah, nice one. Thank you very much. Good to meet you. You too. Catch you soon. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. Hey, friends. If you want to check out Ned's book, Beast Making, I put links to where you can buy it in the show notes at thenuggetclimbing.com. I own a copy, I finished the book, and I will definitely be reading it again as I continue working on improving my own finger strength. I highly recommend this book. I've read a lot of training books. This is one of the best climbing training books I have seen, and I think it's appropriate for climbers at every level from beginner to elite. I've actually been climbing with my pal Joe Kinder out here in Utah, and he just finished reading it, and I think he got a lot out of it as well. So again, there's links to buy it if you want to check it out in the show notes at thenuggetclimbing.com. 
Also, be sure to check out Athletic Greens. I really am a fan of this stuff. I've been taking it every day for the past few months and I love it. It's refreshing, it tastes good, and it provides awesome all-in-one nutritional insurance. If you want to try it, head over to athleticgreens.com nugget to get some free vitamin D and five free travel packs with your purchase. And finally, be sure to check out Grasshopper Climbing. If you haven't climbed on the Grasshopper board, it's freaking awesome, and you should find a place where you can try it out. It's so much fun. You can follow them on Instagram at grasshopperclimbing or visit their website at grasshopperclimbing.com to learn more about the boards, and be sure to tell them I sent you if you want to save some money. That's it, my friends. I appreciate you guys. Thank you so much for listening. Good luck with your finger training, and have a great week. We'll see you next time. <laughs>